You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. Intellectual decay! Turn it off and watch your brain! The Puttermans are just a typical American family. The only thing they're missing is a pet. But have we got a surprise for them? You see, Stanley Putterman's new satellite TV has just gone on the blink. And it's drawn in a creature from outer space. Like all new pets, this one's causing a little trouble around the house. And he's eating the Puttermans out of house and home. In fact, it seems like this creature will eat anything. Well, just about anything. She looked right at my studs and cooled out. This dude's into metal! Now, it's up to the kids to break the creature of its bad habits. I said shut up! But he's not responding well to discipline. Earth children, please, I mean you no harm. I am Pluthar, here to save you. The Puttermans finally got themselves a pet, but they never even had a chance to give it a name. Terror Vision from Empire Pictures. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me is Mr. Josh Hadley. What did that homo do to the jacuzzi? Also with us this week is Mr. Mo Porn. Pills? What color? Shocktober 2017 continues with a look at the offbeat horror comedy Terror Vision. Written and directed by Ted Nicoleo, the film centers on the Putterman family, who, while Father Stan, Garrett Graham, is installing a satellite dish, accidentally receives a distant transmission of a horrific hungry monster which then proceeds to feast on the family. Now we're going to be getting into spoilers galore on this episode, so if you don't want anything ruined, turn off your television set and destroy your satellite receivers. Josh, when was the first time that you saw TerrorVision, and what did you think? I don't know if it's ironic or telling that I first saw it on cable television, because we can get into the history later, but this thing barely got a theatrical release, barely got a VHS release, and so I'm going to wager most of us prior to the DVD era saw it on cable. Don't remember if it was HBO or Showtime, but I remember seeing that poster art, the one with the eyeball inside the satellite dish in the cable guide. And I was eh, maybe 15, 16. It's like, I have to see this. And it's a fantastic movie. It's, I will call it a living cartoon. It's a live action cartoon. And having just rewatched it last night, I want all of that artwork that's on the wall, hanging on my wall. (laughs) How about you, Mo? I think I want to say late 90s. Uh, I didn't see it on cable. I uh, frequented a uh, local video store that had a very, very well stocked cult section. And again, same thing. You know, the the box had that big eyeball. And I'm like, yeah, I need to see this. And then I watched it. And I'm like, this is the most punk rock movie I've ever seen in my life. I adore this. And that and that was pretty much it was love. Love at first sight. Yeah, that cover image is so good. It reminds me a lot, Josh, of uh, the Visitor cover. It actually does, but did you ever see the original pitch artwork cover before they made the poster? I think he posted that on Facebook, right? Can you describe it? It's 
it's like night sky out of a window and there's a TV and there's a monster that looks nothing like the monster in the movie because this was made long before a script was written coming out of the TV and it had a different font and it just said terror vision because this was a Charles Band production and he learned from Corman. You make the poster first. They had a poster and a release date before they ever had a script. So the fact that this turned out to be a pretty decent flick is kind of a minor miracle. Well, Charles Band, I mean, we've talked about some of his work on this show before. And yeah, when he, when it worked, it worked really well. When it didn't, eh, whatever. A lot of times it was still pretty enjoyable. This was when Empire – got to remember, Empire is not the Charles Band most of us know from Full Moon. He had money sunk into these. These A Full Moon film would top out at a million-dollar budget. A low-budget Empire film would be 5 to $7 million dollars. So this was in the era where he was trying to be a mini major. He was almost literally trying to compete with Canon at this point. He had a full studio facility in Italy where like when Terrorvision was being made, they were literally shooting Troll next door and they were setting up. I don't remember which film, but for another film right next door to that in an adjacent studio and they would all share crews. He had the old Dino De Laurentiis studios when Dino went bankrupt, he bought them. So this was not as low end of a movie as it kind of feels. Huh? Well, it looks gorgeous. This movie has such a great look to it. I mean, there are moments where it almost looks like things are being green screened or blue screened in like the, it just has that, that, fakery but it's a wonderful fakery i mean just the the sky looks like it's painted on a backdrop which it is uh behind stan putterman garrett graham's character and then oh the amazing sonny carl davis who's norton the cable repairman but he's not really repairman because it's up to stan to install the thing instead and uh norton's just there basically to uh to Ogle Stan's amazing wife, Raquel, played by Mary Warnov, and to drink his Heineys. And uh, my Heineken had to have been a sponsor for this because they show up so many times. Oh, God. And I love that. <laughs> Grabbing another Heine. <laughs> and the performances are so great. I mean, Sonny Carl Davis doing that whole thing with his hands like, what do you want from me, Mr. Putterman? <laughs> <laughs> with his pants, with his goes, pants pulled up to his nipples. Oh, I love it. <laughs> Which all goes to the live action cartoon that Ted Nick that Ted Nicolau was trying to create. He wanted it to look fake. That's why I mean he he mentions in the documentary on the Blu-ray, he didn't want this to look like it took place in the real world. He wanted it to look like it took place in a twisted version of a television sitcom. I guess satire <laughs> upon satire in a way. And absolutely, they nail it because nobody would really live in that house. But it's an amazing fake house because the entire film is shot on sets. The, there's not a single real location. It's all sound stages. And part of that architecture came from the fact that most of the crew, being Italian, didn't speak English. So the director is trying to get his vision through to people who don't necessarily understand him. And it turned out fantastic. It's kind of like the opposite of Troll 2, where it's like the whole translation of uh, American slang through Italian. Yeah, it's the exact opposite. And Garrett Graham, you can't get a better cartoon face maker than than Garrett Graham. I mean, he just is remarkable in this. And I have to say Diane Franklin as his daughter Susie with that 
wonderful, wonderful hairdo. <laughs> it looks like those wigs weighed 10 pounds on her head. I didn't even realize it was her until the end of the movie. Like she just turned the right direction. I'm like, oh, that's Diane Frank. I'm like, that's amazing. Um, and yeah, the the hair. Oh, just it's like two feet off the top of her head. And and like you said, yeah, it looks like it weighs. Look, it, first off, it looks like it's soaking wet constantly and just weighing her down. She can barely move her head in the thing. And it is just fantastic. She almost wasn't uh, the the daughter, though. Almost every role went to somebody else. They literally almost cast Belinda Carlisle wow. as Susie. That would have been a gift. But then, when then Ted Nicolaus said when, when when he saw Diane Franklin, he's like, "No, she, she's perfect." Mary Warnoff was almost not the mom. She was auditioning for the role of Medusa. But then she said she, she would really love to play the mom character. Harry Shearer almost played the dad instead of Garrett Graham. So in a weird way, it was almost a very very different movie. I couldn't imagine anybody other than Beef playing the dad, though. I mean, It'll really, almost be Bud the Chud to me. Yeah, oh, he's always beef to me. <laughs> Every time he's on screen, I'm sitting there thinking to myself, life at last. <laughs> Mary Warnoff, I've always had such a crush on her, and she just is oh, amazing absolutely. in this. I mean, those those workout outfits that she's wearing, and when she's doing those isometric exercises. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. And but, but saying that, though, Mike, could you have seen her? as Medusa oh, if yeah. she had gotten that role instead. Oh, Mary Warnoff, there's nothing that she can't do. And she would have been wonderful in that. I mean, I don't think that she necessarily has the bust that Jennifer Richards had, which obviously we're, we're right back into what we were talking about before we started recording. We're right back into Elvira territory. I mean, got that, that close up <laughs> to give on her cleavage is amazing. I mean, maybe had they, they buffed up uh, Mary Warnov a little bit, they might have been able to get away with that. But I think Jennifer Richards was naturally gifted in that department. That's actually how she literally got out the role. They, <laughs> they said that her, her, her bosom, Ted Nicola was very open on the commentary. Her bosom is why she was hired. They said the fact that she could actually kind of act helped. Well, it's nice that she can kind of act, but she also has that that stilted thing that I think um, Cassandra Peterson actually works at. It seems very natural for Jennifer Richards, that kind of um, offhanded way that she deals with things as this uh, Medusa character. Well, and, and like the while she's doing the, the the bits on the the screen, like while she's playing the character, she nails that uh, that horror host vibe from that era as well. Uh, just, I mean, just to perfection. It's really, really well done. We should also point out Randy Brooks as Cherry. During her audition, it was just a normal audition. They didn't know she was going to talk like this until they started the first take. <laughs> <laughs> And they and they just said, keep that up. It's perfect. She reminds me a lot of, uh, oh, God, what was the guy's name? Remember, Carla was married to, was it Nick on uh, Cheers? And then he oh, yeah, got yeah, remarried Nick. to the woman who was Casey Kasem's real-life wife. And she spoke like that. And she was so much taller than Dan Hedaya and had that kind of crazy balloon, a helium balloon voice going on. Well, we should also talk about the other two main characters here. O.D. and Sherman. Well, don't forget about Grandpa. My God, Burt Remsen as Grandpa is fucking amazing. When he comes in, he's got that 
poster about lizard tails and he's just <laughs> right into like asking uh Susie about you two and she's like the band and no no the spy plane so he's this great conspiracy nut and then got the dialogue i mean i don't want to get away too too far from the actress but the dialogue is just it's great and how silly it is i mean we talked about the high knees and everything and that stilted way that everybody delivers stuff but yeah the conversations like her just single-mindedness about mtv and bands i mean everybody's playing this great great caricature of these different characters the uh, the grandpa reminded me a lot of like a cartoonish version of the grandfather from the young uh, from the lost boys oh god yeah totally yeah which would come out around the same time so that probably was not intentional i don't think it was intentional at all but it's it but it's the, the connection there is hilarious it is and you you mentioned mtv mike wasp actually appears not only on od's shirt but in the movie as one of the channels they're flipping past this was in an era where empire was in a marketing deal with i can't remember what wasp record label was i think it was maybe metal blade and wasp also appeared in dungeon master and ghoulies 2 around the same time as part of a cross marketing deal with empire so i don't i don't know if that makes their appearance in those movies a little less special or not well, maybe it's all one big universe. I, I actually said that because I'm like, wait a minute, Wasp is in all these, but they aren't playing Wasp in Dungeon Master. They're actually a demonic band in another dimension, so maybe not. Well, we all know what Wasp stands for, right? We are Satan's people. That's right. And yeah, you were talking a little bit about uh, John Grise as O.D., uh, Jonathan, as he is in this one, and oh my God, it, so talking about wigs. I mean, because we all know John Grise now from things like you know Napoleon Dynamite and some of these other movies, where you know he's, he's pretty all natural. He's uh, you know he, he wore a great wig as Uncle Rico, but most of the time when we see the guy, we know that he, you know he's a little thinning on in the hair department. So the wig is just even more crazy that he has to wear this thing. And it just, I mean, I, I think of a poodle sitting on Diane Franklin's head. This seems like he has a poodle cut when it comes to the way that it's like this weird bob and kind of curly. Oh, man. And just he is playing it to the hilt again. Also point out the fact that he was in his mid-20s while playing a teenager. And sometimes that can work, but he looks like he's in his mid-20s. Which kind of adds to the creepy older boyfriend vibe for me. But, oh my god, yeah, the character's name O.D., and I just, I fucking love that line when, I think it's Garrett Graham, is like, Irish boy? This dude's into metal! God, that outfit. And I'm so glad that that, that glove comes into play later on. And his amazing, like, <laughs> spoilers, when he dies and Diane Franklin just like lifts up all those like metal and chains and leather. <laughs> They're all connected. <laughs> but he, but he also has the most inspirational line in the entire movie where he goes, that's okay, guy. There's always something else on. That's what's so cool about TV. We also got to talk about Chad Allen, who was arguably, I mean, you know, we, we know Garrett Graham and Mary Warnov and all that. Chad Allen was the biggest name on the cast at the time. This was his first movie, but you know he was on St. Elsewhere and so many other huge network hit TV shows. 
strangely enough, is it weird to look at him as the largest name on the cast? Did he have a little snow globe and uh, St. Allegis was inside of it? Was that (laughs) – It would have been funny if they were watching St. Allegis, but unfortunately that finale would still be another two years after this movie. Otherwise, that could have been a great in-joke. Well, I found it weird that Diane Franklin is the first name in the credits. I don't know if they were going alphabetically or what, but – well, they couldn't have because Chad Allen would have been first on that. And But yeah, I was just like, oh, wow, she gets – top billing in this well better off dead had come out by that point amityville 2 so you know those were both relative mainstream hits so maybe she was the biggest name on the cast to a to a marketing agent what's interesting too the way that the story is structured that she and od once we're introduced to to her character and the john grise character that they leave for a long time and then Garrett Graham and Mary Warnoff, they leave for a long time, and then it just becomes the Chad Allen and Burt Remsen story with an, another little appearance by Sonny Carl Davis, who comes back to fix the satellite because now, you know, two people are on a well, actually, all four of them are on dates, different dates. And Garrett Graham, uh, the, the Stan and uh, Raquel characters, very open about their swinging lifestyle. I love when it's just like, oh, no, 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 you kids can't stay here. We're going to swing tonight. I was like, what the fuck, man? <laughs> I, I think that was part of the satire of like the family sitcom and all that. I, I Ted Nicolau is a good enough writer. I mean, he, nobody's ever going to put him up there with Patty Chayefsky, but he's a clever enough writer that I I have to feel that that was part of the satire he was going for. And it adds a lot to a lot of the fun as well, because you've got the parents who are just desperately trying to get this orgy going while all this chaos is happening. And, and it almost gets there. It almost gets there. I love, too, when uh, he critiques uh, O.D.'s outfit. But, you know, like, oh, those kids and their punk rock, it's all just, you know, a fad or whatever. Right. And then he's putting on the big medallion and the shirt unbuttoned down to his belly button. I mean, it just – oh, God, it is perfect. That outfit is so great. The clothes, every all the outfits in this are amazing. Well, Okay, for people who haven't seen it, we do need to talk about the artwork on the walls. The artwork on the walls, it, it, it strangely enough, it reminded me a little bit of From Beyond, also a Charles Band production. And a couple of the the art styles looked like it might have been the same artist. And I've actually talked to Barbara Crampton on Twitter about who painted those, and she has no idea, but she loved the artwork in From Beyond. I don't know what happened to all the art, neither does Ted Nicolau. I really want that art. My girlfriend and I were watching this, and she said – why would you want something so tacky? And I'm like, exactly. And we have to talk about the creature who finally kind of shows up. I mean, the the beginning of the movie <laughs> takes place on uh, another planet, which just, oh my God, uh, it so reminds me of like a Gamera versus Giron type of thing where we have the, uh, the, the complete model that is being used for this other world. And we're on uh, planet Pluton in the sanitation de- department. And this, um, the creature gets beamed off of there and bounces around the satellite, uh, the different planets, which is fantastic, and ends up being zapped into their television coming out. And the creature design, it, it looks terrific and it looks so cheesy all in the just the right way. And that it's got 
three eyes, but like one eye on the claw or on the the, kind of hand appendage that it has, the pseudopod almost, and then that big old claw that's coming out. The hand or the the eye that kept focusing on the eye, and I just kept thinking of like the third stage uh, guild navigator from Dune because it just looked a lot like it to me, just all those close-ups. I was actually thinking the Penosaurus from Flesh Gordon. Maybe that's just where the way my mind works. Another thing to note about the movie is, and, and nobody talks about this in the documentary or the commentary, but do you notice that there's for swingers and all this, there's no nudity, all the violence is ridiculously over the top, and there's no swearing. I actually think they were going for a PG-13 with this movie. You're right, because when Garrett Graham gets upset about stuff, he always does, like, holy tomatoes. I, didn't, I was going to say, I didn't even notice that there was no swearing in it. Wow, that's wild. You even notice, like, whenever the monster kills anyone, they bleed green. Yeah, like right. The MP, like the MPAA would give them an R for red blood. I really think they thought this was going to be a PG or PG-13 movie. And it's nice because they kind of talk around things more than they talk about them, even though they're they're kind of out front about them being swingers. Um, even when it comes to though uh, the 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 other swinger couple, I mean, you already mentioned the the woman who comes in, but uh, the guy um, Spiro, oh my God, Spiro yeah. is Alejandro Ray and his whole thing about how that he's into the Greek lifestyle and he's very, very Greek. I mean, Spiro, obviously I posted on Facebook about that where he's like, you know, I'm Greek, you know, and I'm like, what a great way to tell somebody that you're gay, you know, or that you're into guys, you know, just I'm Greek, you know, I'm into Greek culture, (laughs) right? He's so Greek that he wants to make an Uzo Margarita. And I love the way that he overpronounces everything. It's so great. To poor Stan, it's almost like like him being Greek was a come-from-behind kind of revelation. And, I had yeah, to. they definitely punish poor Spiro for being gay. I mean, and there's so many gay slurs in this movie. I was just like, oh, this is 1986. I'm so uncomfortable right now. <laughs> the movie itself didn't really play too well. Critics hated it. And it barely got released because you have to remember, this is when Empire was having, as I said, financial problems. So the movie got the budget it needed, but they had next to nothing for when it actually came out. The thing barely was released in theaters and their advertising budget was almost non-existent. So most people didn't discover this till cable or this tiny VHS release. So this is one of those movies that wasn't released. It escaped like I said, Charles Band was kind of the mark quality, quality in quotation marks sometimes during the, the late 80s, early 90s. And it was one of those things where I would actually seek out uh, movies with his name on it when I was at the video stores. When it came to the full moon titles, it was just like, oh, my God, this is a full moon movie. We have to rent it because it was just one of those things. It was like kind of like a, a Canon or, or a Carol Co. where it was just like, OK, if this theater, if this is the company is putting this movie out, then I will watch it no matter what it is. But that only gets that, but that only goes up to a certain point though. Like, uh, like eventually you start getting into stuff like doll man versus demonic toys and evil bong and stuff like that. And I'm like, I have no patience for those. I mean, especially since, since uh, doll man versus demonic toys is I think like 17% new footage. And it's mostly just uh, uh Corey Feldman in a, in a powdered wig uh, pretending to be, 
you know, what's the character? Uh, one of the Toulons, you know? Yeah, no, I, I think it was kind of around the time that, well, it was more around the time that I went to college and would stop uh, making all the weekly trips to the video store and started working at a video store that uh, things changed for me. Well, yeah, there's a whole period where where every, like, I mean, not everything, but like a, a bunch of the stuff they put out is great. I mean, you've got, well, like like the original Doll Man's great or like Shrunken Heads, uh, Oblivion, you know, like st- stuff in that vein where it's just goofy and over the top and fun. Then the later stuff happened and we don't want to talk about that. At this point, we're in the Empire days and they were putting, you know, five, six, seven million dollars into a film and these things would get released nationwide they were literally competing with canon was probably their biggest competitor because you know new i don't i think new horizons i think corman had sold new world already by this point new horizons didn't have a a lot of theatrical distribution at that point you know corman had pretty much already adapted to home video whereas charles still thought there was life in the theatrical and the fact that these were all shot in italy meant they got a lot of production value for a lot less money because he said for a lot of the movies that they shot in this era of empire it cost them more money to bring the actors over from america than it actually cost to shoot the damn movies because he had the he had the full sound stage he like i said this was the old dino de Laurentiis sound stages he had the sound stages the costumes he had a full poster department it was cheaper to print posters over there you could cut film the, the literal film stock was cheaper to get from an italian distributor than an american one everything was just so much cheaper until he overextended himself and that was about a year after this film 1986 was a great time for movie fans. I mean, I know cable had been around for a long time, and I know VHS had been around for quite a while, but it wasn't till a certain point in time, and I want to say it's like the early 80s, when VHS becomes affordable enough and we start to get enough titles out there that it actually makes economic sense to have a a VCR in your home. And there's a certain point where cable becomes affordable enough when HBO and and all of these other packages are out there where it's just like, okay, yeah, now, you know, I'm going to switch from on TV to cable. And I'm trying to remember that exact time when we adopted that in my family. Uh, But it was just like, there was a point in the early eighties where suddenly now you can see all these things that you couldn't see before. And this type of movie this this uh yes i know it was supposed to be theatrical but eventually gets dumped onto vhs and cable i mean this movie was you know it it is perfect for that market because then you get the word of mouth and you know hearing you guys talk about it like i saw it on cable i saw it on vhs it's like yeah that that's the place for a movie like this and it just it works so well this is a, a perfect late at night watching this kind of a film, you know, it, it, it works well that they have a horror hostess in this because I think this is the type of film that she would have played and would have made fun of. Indeed. And also one other quick note about the production, Frank Zappa almost did the music for Ooh. this. Oh my God. Oh, the only, re- the only reason he didn't, he was totally on board is when, by the time they did the music, he was touring. So it was a scheduling conflict. Otherwise Frank Zappa was going to do the score but I don't know about you guys, but I love the Fibonacci theme song of Terror Vision. That is so oh catchy and so mid '80s too. Oh, the music in this is just fucking fantastic, like all around. Do you guys hear like a little Ride of the Valkyries in the theme to this? 
I can hear it. I didn't, but now that you I, say that, yes, I can. Yeah, I didn't really notice it until until you mentioned it, you know, uh, previously. But yeah, absolutely, absolutely, it's wild. But yeah, no, that theme song, the the, the opening and closing credits theme is amazing. And I mean, I, I also we talked a little bit about this before we started recording. I mean. OD is the next generation uh, King Vidiot, right? Absolutely. And <laughs> and this, I mean, you could take this Terrorvision theme and put it right next to the uh, the joysticks theme. Yeah, the, the play with my I joysticks. Mean, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> These are amazing, amazing pieces of music. Amazing John Grise performances. I mean, this this guy just just owned the, this period of time in the eighties. Well, he took a, he took a character like King Vidiot and basically amped amped it up, which is insane because King Vidiot was already so over the top it's oh like i have nothing but love for like this era john grease performances because they're just so good so good and him there playing air guitar all the time it's constant, like for no reason yeah <laughs> he he actually was almost talked out of taking this movie because he had just filmed real genius but it had not come out yet and we know real genius was a pretty big hit when it came out and he had his friends and even his agent told him, you're in real movies now. You don't have to do Empire films. And he's like, yeah, but it just looks so much fun. Which is how people should be picking movies to, to, to do. I mean, like, how fun does the movie look? It looks great. Do it. I actually see him kind of insulted at the whole you're in real movies now thing that his agent told him. You know, because oh, Empire movies, those aren't real films. I have to say, going back to the creature design, I am so impressed that you get to see almost the entire creature. I mean, there's some really good long shots of this thing. It isn't just a claw, an eye, you know, a, a hand appendage type of thing, uh, the hand tongue that comes out, that you get to see this thing in action is really very cool. Like when they finally have that moment of uh, of connection with the creature. Was it? Did anybody see that movie that made you uh, with the alien that made you cry like a butthole? <laughs> <laughs> you will notice though, you never see the entire creature moving. That was one of the limitations they had. John Buechler, who made the creature, they could only ever get his words half of the fucking thing to work at any given time. But what they managed to do with half of the fucking creature at any time was brilliant. I mean, uh, yeah, like like you had mentioned that the hand tongue was one of my favorite parts about it, but not as much as after he kills grandpa and you get the big fake grandpa head for a second there. Oh yes. Oh, and like, and like, and that's pretty brilliant too, how they incorporate the, the creature sort of turning all of the, 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 the people he's eaten into puppets, you know, and using them sporadically. And like, what was the line that the grandfather kept, uh, kept taking care of business, taking care of business, you know, And that's the best, too, when they show the four swingers in bed. Right, right. And they're like, where's Grandpa? And his head pops up, just take care of business. And and, and the sheets are just undulating under there because of the claws. It just just looks like a massive handjob party under there. And everybody is just covered in slime. Just covered. Oh, God. The slime budget on this movie must have been huge. Ooh, what is this? Ooh, must be a sex lubricant. Which is literally what it was. It was KY yeah. jelly from a sex shop. I, I think we should also talk about 
poor Pluthar. Poor I actually like how this film pulls the rug out from under you. You, you think Pluthar is going to come, he's going to save them all, and Medusa accidentally <laughs> fucking kills the hero. <laughs> Well, the first time you see that, you don't expect that. Or the ending. The ending is kind of nihilistic. Spoilers, but everybody dies and the monster wins. That's not a typical movie ending. We're talking about how the creature can imitate people, you know, imitate Scrampa, imitates Mom, Dad, and the two swingers. And I was thinking as I'm watching this, I'm thinking of uh, the 78 version of uh, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, where the creatures do win. So when she comes in and punches Pluthar in the, <laughs> the helmet and his head explodes, <laughs> I was like, oh, man, are we really going to go that dark with this thing? And I was so glad that they did. It's the most fitting ending for this ridiculous movie. I mean, I couldn't think of any heartwarming ending other, you know, and just no, you need to you've already made the movie as dark and ridiculous as possible. You might as well finish the job, go the complete nihilist route and have the monster win. And then you have the very, very end with Medusa monster getting in the limo. So I guess there's more carnage coming. Well, I I see. I actually got the impression that he was now going to go and take over her show because he likes those movies so much. Yeah, he was laughing his ass off. The monster was at Earth versus the Flying Saucers. And it was nice. I can't remember which movie it is that they show, but uh, the fighting, quote unquote, dinosaurs are all lizards. And I was like, well, that's really nice that it ties into Grandpa and the lizard theme and everything that his his whole renewable food source. (laughs) You just you just chop it off. They don't give a hoot. It just grows right back. Yeah. <laughs> I'm eating some lizard jerky. Yeah, and I have to say again too the the makeup on Pluthar really well done, and he just looks really nice in that in that outfit and that that uh, the 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 facial stuff that they have the appliances on him, and I really like his performance as well, especially when he comes down. He's just like, I have come to exterminate the hungry beast. <laughs> Unfortunately for actor William Paulson, that Pluthar makeup was hell for him. Not so much when he's like pleading to people on TV with the very Jewish mother hand gestures, but <laughs> w- w- when he has the fishbowl on his head. Ooh, it was sealed, yeah. so he couldn't bl- breathe. So you'll notice Jesus. the editing is very – he gets his lines out, and they cut to something else. So not only is he under all that makeup, he can't breathe. I was really glad to know that he was also the alien in Zone Troopers, which we've talked about on the show before. Another Charles Band film. Yes, yes. And a lot, a lot of connections to uh, Transfers with that one. So it's uh, highly recommended. If you like Transfers, definitely check that one out, too. And I, I would say, looking back at the film, when you look at like the documentary on the Blu-rays, there's only two notable people that are missing. Well, three. You got the two dead people, and you have Jennifer Richards as Medusa. So I don't know if she's ashamed of the film or not, but everybody else, even the the minor characters like Ian Patrick Williams as Officer Nolke, he he's in the documentary. So I, I don't know if what it, what it was with Jennifer Richards, if she's not proud of the movie or maybe they couldn't find her. She is still acting, but everybody comes back. John Grise, Chad Allen, Warnov, Garrett Graham didn't, but you know there are reasons. 
Well, yeah, no, everybody that I reached out to was more than happy to talk about the movie. So kind of as, as that as a transition, let's go ahead and take a break and play a trio of interviews that we did for this episode. First, you'll hear from Mr. Ted Nicoleo, the writer and director of the film. Next, you'll hear from Susie Putterman, Diane Franklin. And last but not least, you'll hear from Stan Putterman, Mr. Garrett Graham. And we'll be back with all of those after these brief messages. <laughs> All right, I'm here with Bill Byforce and Mr. Chris to tell you a little bit about Outside the Cinema. All right, Reverend Scott, take us to church. Uh, What can we expect to find from a typical show? Two hours of just random blabber. (laughs) Uh, Is there anyone's coattails you wrote in on to popularity? I'm the guy that f***ing burns the coattails and then pisses on them. You review all these exploitation, (laughs) horror, comedy, cult, and often all-around terrible movies. You must have a strong driving force that keeps you going. Ego. <laughs> I don't know if I've heard you say that before. Uh, yeah, I've been saying that for a while. Really? I have been saying that for a while. Also, I'm high on smack. Well, it's definitely working for you guys. <laughs> People are coming out in droves to support you on iTunes. We just the other day got a, a, a one-star review on iTunes. Well, that is one <laughs> That is one star too many. Let me tell you. The worst f***ing piece of shit I've ever heard. This has been great, guys. Thanks, Scott. Ah. Uh. That was good. Oh, he's got you crying over there. I'm good for the rest of the year. Nice. That was too much. You ever wonder when Spider-Man goes to the bathroom if the toilet paper sticks to his fingers? You ever wonder why Superman wears his underwear outside of his pants? My name is Imran. My name is Anthony. He's the jock. And he's the nerd. And we're your hosts for the Jock and Nerd podcast where we sometimes try to attempt to answer these questions. This is a full spoiler podcast, and we swear a lot. Check it out for awesome geek news, interviews, and comic book reviews. Visit jockandnerd.com. We are your superhero TV movies and comic book culture curators. Boom. Jockandnerd.com. Jockandnerd! Well, Eric, would you say that we're just two dudes who love talking about movies over at the Culture Cast? I mean, yeah. I don't know if dudes is the correct nomenclature, though. <laughs> dudes, bros. Okay, what about movie nerds? No. Okay. Uh, dudes is fine. Not nerds. Anything but movie nerds. Well, over here at the Culture Cast, we talk about new movies, overlooked gems, classics, and some films that cause us to question our sanity twice a week. Yeah, Hot to Trot comes to mind for sure. Yeah, Hot to Trot was a real mess. So make sure to check out the Culture Cast on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and wherever you get your podcasts. This is Adam Spiegelman from the Cult Movie Podcast, proudly resents, and you listen to my favorite movie podcast, The projection booth. I know. It's messed up, right? Were you always a movie fan growing up? Yeah, I was a real movie fan growing up. My father used to take me on Saturday afternoons to, you know, the matinees in my neighborhood. We really both enjoyed science fiction and horror films. I sort of gained a great appreciation for, you know, the the kind of monster movies of the 50s and early 60s through that. And then, you know, loved the Saturday night kind of late night hosted horror movies, you know, that, that kind of featured the universal films from the 40s. 30s. So basically that that was one of the genres that that really just kind of appealed to my imagination from a really young age. So how did you decide to make that your career? Basically I set off for college to be a doctor. Took about a year of courses in pre-med, but I had been a rock and roller throughout high school and played in bands and Continued playing music at the University of Texas. One night I went with a friend to see 
Juliet of the Spirits, the Fellini film, and it kind of changed my life watching that movie. I realized that films could do everything that music could do, could do everything that writing could do, but in a way that kind of used all of the arts and blended them together. And I pretty much, after seeing Juliet of the Spirits and Bergman's film, The Seventh Seal, just decided that making movies was going to be the way I would try to make my life go. So did you go back to school and change your major? I changed my major. I stayed in school, changed my major to film, had some really great mentors at the university and got a lot of opportunities to make short films. And uh, we got funding from PBS for some of our films. So it was really a good time to be making films in at the University of Texas. There was a lot of money to be kind of utilized and great equipment, really great staff. I know one of the earliest credits that I can find for you is working on the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Had you done work uh, on other feature films before that? Texas Chainsaw Massacre was really the first feature film that that, uh, I got to work on. Basically, I had been a boom operator for a friend of mine named Courtney Gooden, who was kind of the premier sound man in Austin. And uh, when Toby Hooper set out to make Chainsaw Massacre. Uh, fortunately for me, Courtney Gooden was busy working on a film in San, in San Antonio. And so uh, they he kind of recommended me, and I was a good friend of Daniel Pearl, the cinematographer of Chainsaw Massacre. And so with his recommendation and Courtney's recommendation, uh, there I was, the sound man on that film. You seem to have worked a lot of different jobs in your early days. I see things like sound department, editorial department, uh, you know, even doing uh, the uh, photography for the prologue sequence on the day time ended. What was some of your favorite things to do during that time, or was it just the joy of working? I kind of uh, loved editing, even when I was directing films uh, at the University of Texas. Uh, editing to me was kind of like the second best thing to to be able to do in film. And so when I moved from Texas to California, the first job I got was on a film called Roar. I don't know if you've ever heard of it, starring Tippi Hedren and produced by Noel Marshall. It's like, you know, sort of this classic, what in the hell were they thinking kind of a movie. And I got hired on to, you know, sync dailies on that film. It was kind of the uh, job, the, the job that anybody could get, you know, no matter if you were fresh in town or straight out of prison, you could get a job on Roar. And so I quickly kind of became like the first editor on Roar. And so for me, editing was kind of the the pleasurable alternative to directing, you know, that it was, you know, you were still dealing with performance, you were dealing with rhythm of the, of the film and um, with um, story. So I, I kind of worked as an editor for a few years and then ended up kind of editing a few films for Charlie Band. And at Charlie Band's company, if you kind of were in his trusted circle, eventually I knew you'd get a chance to to direct. And so I kind of let him know that that's really what I wanted to do. And uh, in the course of a few films, I found myself directing that little sequence on um, Dungeon Master and later on Terror Vision. 
Yeah, you've actually worked on a few of the films that we've talked about on the show before. One of our shows we did was on Tourist Trap, and we did another one on Trancers. Tourist Trap, David Schmoller was another film school friend of mine, and I had been a cinematographer on his short film, The Spider Will Kill You. And when he and Larry Carroll you know, came up with a script for Tourist Trap, I was still working on Roar, but uh, Larry Carroll had hired me on to Roar because he was working on Roar before me. And then he left Roar to to, uh, produce Tourist Trap. And when they got the film together, they asked me to come on and edit it. And so I kind of ditched Roar because it it seemed like it was a movie that was going to go on forever. Yeah, I I can't even imagine working on that project. It's just, it's... It's crazy to look at from an audience point of view. I can't imagine what the making of that one was like. It was truly an, a, a crazy, crazy experience. The, you know, it was dangerous and irresponsible and fascinating. And the people that were working on it were like a broad range of humanity. And Noel Marshall was possessed and crazy to make this movie and he was an interesting guy and you know it was one of those things that was like a great learning experience for sure but insane completely insane so what was your experience like on dungeon master basically i was the editor of dungeon master for a number of months and uh it seemed to me to be kind of a goofy crazy hodgepodge of a film and i was editing these sequences directed by directors that kind of were ranged from David Allen, who was really good, to John Beekler, to other people that I, I felt like I I could direct better than, than they could. So basically, you know, when, when the film ended up, you know, with a too short running time and Charlie wanted to do another uh, sequence, I kind of put my hand up and let him know that I wanted to do it. That's how I got that chance to direct that little sequence. And it was, you know, typical Charlie Band, two days out in the desert, uh, not enough hotel rooms for everybody. And in the end, one of the cars stalled and wouldn't start up again. So I had the choice of, you know, finishing the sequence however I could or, you know, costing Charlie another day's shooting and kind of uh, made the right decision by from Charlie Band's point of view and basically uh, kind of figured out a way to, to finish the sequence that day. You went under the name Nicholas Beardsley for Savage Island. I was wondering why that was. I just felt like that was one of those kind of films that I just, you know, certain films I have put different names on because I just didn't feel like it was part of, didn't want it to be part of, you know, whatever my reputation might become, you know. That film was uh, Charlie's experiment with taking two previously produced movies and figuring out a way to tell one story out of them and then, you know, uh, piece it together with with the uh, prologue and epilogue. So it was not, you know, it wasn't my film, basically, so I put, didn't put my name on it. Well, you did have your name on Terrorvision. I'm very curious how this one came about for you. <laughs> uh, the method of making movies at Empire in those days was 
Charlie Band would come up with a title and a poster. And from the poster art and the title, his, you know, filmmakers would be invited to, you know, cook up a story of some kind. And I had just finished editing, I guess. I'm, I'm not quite sure of the sequence of, of events, but I think uh, what I had, I think it was Danny Bilson and Paul DeMeo's film, Zone Troopers. I had finished editing that, and that was Charlie's kind of first foray into shooting in Italy. And Charlie knew I wanted to direct, and suddenly he had a number of projects that had to get off the ground quickly. And so he uh, he showed me the poster for TerraVision, and I sort of knew by that point that with Charlie and with John Beekler's effects that you could you couldn't achieve something realistic and terrifying, but you could certainly achieve something funny, and. I wanted to make a movie that would kind of like affect young viewers that might catch it on television in the way that movies like Invaders from Mars or uh, 5,000 Fingers of Dr. T kind of affected me when I was a kid. You'd see, catch a little bit of it on TV, and it was like unlike any movie that you'd ever seen before. You know, Invaders from Mars with its with its expressionistic production design, and same thing with Five Fingers of Doctor T. It was like a nightmare on film. So, from the poster and from my knowledge of what could be achieved from Charlie's uh, company, I said, "Well, I'd love to do this. If can we make it kind of a horror comedy?" and Charlie, for to his credit, said yes. And you know, the, I think trying to pull off a horror comedy is like one of the most difficult challenges. And uh, you know, I'm not quite sure how successful television was because you know some people love it and some people just can't stand to watch it. So for me, it was going to be kind of a stoner comedy horror movie, and that's kind of what we set out to do. You talked about the look of the film, and I'm curious what your relationship was with uh, Giovanni Natalucci on this. Giovanni Natalucci came to the United States to talk about TerraVision, and we spent a few days, you know, traveling around and looking at houses and kind of swingery houses out in the San Fernando Valley, and um, looking at books of houses from various location companies. Basically, we sat and talked and talked and talked and kind of compared notes on a number of kind of visual things. And then he went back to Italy, and he is a true madman. He kind of cooked up this insane interior. When I finally came to Italy for pre-production there and saw the paintings that they were working on for the walls, and saw his designs for the for the jacuzzi room and the living room and the kind of conversation pit and all of that. It was just it sort of took what the script expressed and amped it up a thousand percent and kind of set the tone for the actors when they came over. And he was a he was really I mean he still is he's a really interesting wild man of a production designer. Yeah, the use of the colors, the use of the shapes of the sets, everything just—it just sets everything apart that from everything else that I'd seen from that era. 
yeah, for him, it was his chance to express, you know, his view of Americans and kind of the tackiness of, of Americans. So it was, it really worked out for the, for the movie. One thing else that also sets this movie apart is the cast and just the level of talent that you had in this cast. What was it like putting that together? The casting of the film was a really fun process. Basically, in those days, Charlie was still paying, you know, whatever SAG SAG um, minimums, at least to people, scale so that we were able to cast, you know, people with names. And we looked long and hard for Stanley Putterman. And a lot of actors turned us down. And then finally, when it came to Garrett Graham and Garrett Graham came in and read for us, it was, he is so funny and such a perfect kind of foil for all the things that went on in that film. So Garrett was kind of the first that we cast. And then simultaneously, we were looking for Susie and uh, we kind of spoke to Belinda Carlisle from the Go-Go's and eventually Diane came in and she was perfect, you know, and then I had seen Mary Warnoff, you know, in her movies, but also we were kind of ending up at the same nightclubs at the time and hearing, you know, hearing music. And so finally we called her in really to read for the late night horror hostess Medusa's part. And she came in to read for it. And the first thing she said was, you know, this is the role that everybody would immediately try to cast me in. But the role that I'm really interested in and would love to play is the mom because nobody would ever think to cast me in that role. And it took about two seconds to realize what a brilliant, wonderful idea that was. And she knew that Garrett was playing the dad and that really excited her. So with the mom and dad, with Garrett and Mary kind of on board, and then we, we looked around forever for the grandpa character and got to interview a whole lot of, you know, old Hollywood leading men. And, but none of them quite had the kind of raucous, cantankerous quality that that Grandpa needed until we found our Grandpa. He was unbelievable, and then the 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 kid came together really well. Even though his parents were kind of Christians and objected to a lot of the art on the wall, it was. Um, you know, he, he was perfect for the role. And then, uh, we were looking a long time for the OD character. And when John Grise came in, he was much older than the, than the part called for, but he was so funny. The cast and the tone of the movie kind of fit together perfectly between the production design and Garrett and and Mary kind of leading the way in terms of the the tone. And then it was a matter of kind of getting everybody up to that level of performance. Bert Remsen is just, God, every scene that he's in, he is just hilarious. He was such a pleasure to work with. And he was worried, you know, because he had that bum knee and was worried about getting around. And But he... Uh, was so game for it. I mean, you know, the, you take a, a bunch of actors to to Rome, you know, uh, you can get like pretty good actors who, who are willing to go to Rome. Uh, but we 
this I think this was such a kind of perfect union of cast for this movie. And it sort of drove the film to new heights, you know, and and uh, Diane was really on board to kind of take it to that level. And John Grise was a little bit reluctant because he, he was more kind of a grounded actor. But, uh, you know, we had some arguments about about the, the kind of tone of the performance, but he. He uh, stuck with it, and uh, he was really hilarious, I thought. What was it like on set with all of these uh, great actors with these big personalities working in this uh, uh, – because this, again, going back to the set, it's like this wonderland that you had created. The studio that we were shooting at was the old Dino De Laurentiis Studios kind of outside of Rome. It was kind of a wreck of a place at the time, the, the kind of – the little coffee shop was was in pretty good shape, and the, some of the production offices were in good shape, and the sound stages were kind of shells of sound stages. And it was summertime, and it was hotter than hell as we were shooting. But the whole cast really came together. They knew it was my first film, and they really helped by you know being really great troopers and not complaining too much about the heat and enjoying each other's company and, and keeping everybody laughing. And it was like uh, one of those situations where we would shoot all day and then they had part of the cast in a hotel on the beach in a little town called Torbionica uh, with me and, and, uh, and like Mary and Garrett and then some of the cast at another hotel a few miles away in a different town. Uh, so, so it was we were able to work together and then play together at night and have dinner, and travel into Rome and shop around on the weekends. So it was a, a great kind of location experience with a, a bunch of people that were having fun doing the scenes that they were doing. Garrett's like a kind of a madman when he's not working, but the moment he gets on a stage he's like the the most collaborative wonderful person to work with and mary was just you know knew exactly what what she wanted to do for that character i'm trying to remember when she w- did um uh eating raul because that was another one where she seemed to almost play against type and i could see those two roles you know kind of speaking to one another because yeah she is the unexpected person in there because i can see gare graham being insane and doing those things that he was doing as that character but yeah i was really surprised when she showed up as the mom and it just it plays so well (laughs) yeah because she is probably the least maternal person that uh, that exists in the universe you know she's like not maternal not uh affectionate in that way but she's super funny and super friendly and very open um so for her, it was it was fantastic, you know. She really had a good time, and especially because she was acting with Garrett, you know. And then Alejandro Ray as as Spiro the Swinger, he that he surprised me that he came onto the film, but he, I think, was up for doing something completely crazy, and he was fantastic. I thought too. And I was very surprised to see uh, Ian Patrick Williams in there as well. He did a great job. Yeah, he uh, you know was a friend of Stuart Gordon's and had worked with Stuart. And 
I guess he just sort of came recommended and, and I was like, yeah, sure. Yeah. Come on. And then, uh, for the, uh, the satellite repair man, uh, I was able to cast my friend from Texas, uh, Sonny Davis jr. Who's kind of gone on to become like kind of a staple of Charlie's, um, cast. And to do so many other things, I mean, I remember him as uh, Albert and Thelma and Louise, uh, just uh, and even yeah, showing yeah. up in uh, Fast Times at Ridgemont High. He, he was just everywhere. Yeah, he is a you know character actor who uh, has kind of worked in Hollywood forever and ever. Now he's back in Texas and and continuing to work. And now a staple of the Evil Bong films, which I was surprised yeah. there are so many of those. <laughs> Yeah, uh, yeah, there, it's definitely like a franchise that won't quit, you know. Not only did you direct this one, but you wrote this one. How close to your initial vision of this, when you're writing the screenplay, was the final version of the film? Pretty close. I think the you know the screenplay had you know was very broad and crazy like this. The the filming, we pretty much stuck to the script for dialogue, and the I think what, what what surprised me and kind of took the script, you know, a little bit further was just the combination of production design and costume design, and maybe I, this being my first film, I had no sense of restraint or something, so I kind of kept, you know. Uh, taking the costuming to, you know, further and further. And so really it was, a the, uh, the movie ended up being very close to what I had envisioned. You know, I think I should have envisioned a happier ending perhaps, uh, might've made the film a little more popular in the cinemas, but I, it felt to me like, because it was an homage to like fifties uh, science fiction films and monster movies, it felt like the the alien had to win for once, you know. Well, how was this received when it went out theatrically? It was released the same week that the space shuttle Challenger exploded, so the the mood of the country was really somber. And, uh, so I, and I think what happened was Charlie, you know, tried to release the movies on his own and had released eliminators and troll, you know, two weeks apart in the four weeks before terror vision was to be released and didn't really have the resources to, to buy a lot of ad time or to, to publicize the movies very well, or even to put the trailers in the movies in enough time in advance. So the combination of the, the outrageous and kind of like befuddling tone of terrorism mixed with the uh, sadness of the space shuttles explosion mixed with the fact that people didn't know what they were getting into and maybe they had been burned once or twice already by Charlie Band. Uh, in the end, it didn't make very much money in the, in the theaters and most of the reviews just killed it. You know, people hated that film. So for me, it was 
I was really happy to have the film finished and, and felt like it was representative of, of what we set out to make. And then kind of the, the sock in the head of having the film so hated really kind of was depressing for quite, quite a long time after that. And, you know, made me question, you know, my, my taste and my sensibility of storytelling and all of that. But I knew that there was this cult of people that really loved it and turned their friends on to it in the way that it was supposed to be. And there was a lot of people that saw it, you know, on television and it sort of had the effect that, that I talked about earlier, which was, uh, you see it. And you go, what in the hell is that? Because it looks nothing like a normal movie, uh, and it and it is kind of like expressionistic as a child's nightmare. So uh, I felt like it it ended up kind of doing what it was supposed to do, and then as its reputation grew, as it became harder and harder to find on VHS, and it wasn't released on DVD for so many years, it actually was kind of satisfying in the end that it that it did find its audience and its audience turned their friends on to it in the in the way that you do with something that's like so weird that you have to share it so by the 2000s i was i was like okay this was a bit of a disappointment because it didn't make me the successful filmmaker that i thought i was going to be uh at that point but the movie certainly had like longevity and a life beyond, you know, the, the, the limited time when it was, you know, fresh and released and, and continues to have people that are still sharing it with their friends. So it's been pretty satisfying in the end. Well, what was that initial experience? Like when was the first time somebody came up to you and was able to tell you how much that movie connected with them? I could see it on the uh, internet movie database that, you know, the comments that, that people wrote that it was, uh, that it was kind of catching on with people. And then, uh, you know, I would see people sometimes in a grocery store or something who would recognize me from the, the kind of making ofs that Charlie did with all the movies that I did with him. And they would tell me how much it meant to them, how much they love it. And then at horror conventions, I would meet people. And when you see like much younger people who are still relating to a movie that is, is like what, 30 years old or so by now, uh, it was really, uh, made me happy. You know, I have to say really was a satisfying connection with people. Well, you said that it kind of, you know, the, the way that critic, the way that what's the phrase audiences stayed away from it in droves that it made you question uh, yourself. I mean, did that affect your career in any way? I, no- I noticed that you didn't direct anything for a few years after that. What happened was the, with ter- after Terrorvision, uh, you know, I was still working at Empire, and Charlie uh, had you know had me writing scripts and developing you know a number of different things, and none of them quite connected with him enough to, to go into production. And I think he was starting to have some money troubles. And then he, 
the his way of kind of developing scripts turned into like a contest where everybody would submit the most outrageous film titles that they could. And, you know, if your film title was selected, you'd get, you know, probably $50. I don't know. And one of the titles that somebody submitted was uh, Space Sluts in the Slammer. And uh, somehow Charlie said, hey, you want to, you know, take a stab at writing this? So I wrote a script that was basically kind of a sex farce in outer space. And it, it was actually a pretty good script and really, really funny. And that was going to be the next film that I was going to do. And it, like, um, we cast it. We, Giovanni Natalucci, um, you know, did the designs. Uh, it was, we were going to kind of use all of the old sets that were built for Peter Manoogian's film arena. What, you know, it was really exciting because we had a great cast lined up, really beautiful costumes, a very funny intergalactic kind of space story. And I, uh, so I went over to Rome to start pre-production along with uh, Frank Hildebrand, who was going to be the line producer. And, you know, four or five days into pre-production was when the bank kind of closed down Empire Pictures. So that film got shut down, you know, before we even started. I think if, you, if you're going to survive in the film industry, you've got to be you've got to be resilient and like suffer, be able to suffer a whole lot of disappointments and still kind of keep coming back and, and trying again. So after that movie got canceled, Charlie, it took a while for him to get back on his feet with, uh, with full moon. And, you know, I went back to editing and edited a few movies and eventually, once he got full moon going, was able to, you know, start directing again. And you've directed so many things. I mean, the the subspecies films, uh, remote. I mean, so many of these, I, I can imagine or I can picture in my mind so many of these box covers from my days of working at a video uh-huh. store, you know. Uh, uh-huh. <laughs> like you were one of the writers or the writer on, uh, uh, what was it, Assault of the Killer Bimbos. It's just like I immediately yeah. think of that poster image. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, it was a it was a exciting place to work, you know, uh, working for Charlie was you didn't make a lot of money, but you had a whole lot of freedom uh and that was good for those that era, you know. So like you say, I got to work on Assault of the Killer Bimbos which was a script and Anita Rosenberg was directing and and the script was not as good as it could have been. And so I kind of took a crack at it for a couple of weeks and, and it seemed to be really funny. And the basic style of making movies for Charlie was still, you know, poster title. What do you think? Come up with a story. And with subspecies, basically a Romanian expatriate had come to Charlie and said, you know, now with the fall of Ceausescu, uh, we can do business in Romania, and uh, he put together a deal where the, the Romanian film 
uh, industry would kind of pay all the Romanian costs if Charlie would bring over the cast and pay for the post-production and release of the film. And at that time, I think uh, they had asked Stuart Gordon if he wanted to go over, and he said no, so Charlie asked me. And I was up for some kind of weird adventure and went over to Romania and met Vlad Palnescu, who was going to be the cinematographer, and uh, Juana Tofan, who was his girlfriend at the time and now his wife, who was the costume designer, and traveled around and looked at locations. And it was spectacular, the places that we would be able to shoot. And uh, I loved Vlad. Uh, He didn't speak any English at the time. And, but Juana spoke English pretty well, so we were able to, you know, converse through her and got to be really good friends. Uh, so I told Charlie, yeah, I'll do it. And uh, so the script was written and uh, I went over to shoot it. And it was this was probably six or seven months after the revolution or eight months after the revolution when we actually went over to shoot the film. And it was desolation in Romania at that time. But the, the, the experience of making the film was such a hardship. And I, I wrote a, kept a journal called, um, the secret diaries of Mr. Potato head because we were eating a lot of potatoes, but the, the, the actual making of the film was such a twisted adventure or misadventure of, you know, just unhappy actors and drunken actors and drunken crew members and people going on strike. And every day was one disaster after another. Uh, so I started keeping this journal just to kind of maintain my sanity. Uh, and, but after it was over, uh, we were so happy to leave that country, but like all things, you know, after a few months, the kind of horrible memories kind of fade and just the good memories remain. And, and I realized what a life changing, like blessed sort of experience that was to be able to go over there and make a movie under such trying circumstances and make some great friends who would be friends for the rest of my life. And a movie that I knew was going to be kind of flawed because it was going to be me trying to make a a European kind of chamber movie because I knew that that was what basically what was the, the, the resources that we'd have to work with would kind of allow that. So, uh, after the, after I kind of just had nostalgia for it again and, uh, Paramount liked the first, uh, subspecies film and wanted more, so we invited Vlad and Juana to come to the United States and Charlie, you know, set up the studio Castell films there so that we could do some species two and three back to back. So it, in the end, that, the, that film, the, the subspecies films in television are the films that kind of, I'm, I guess, most known for. Uh, and, uh, the experience of working with Anas Hove, the guy who plays Radu, on the first subspecies was terrifying and very harrowing and drunken madness most of the time. Uh, on the second film, I said, Anas, I'd love to work with you, but no drinking on the set, and I will drink a bottle of wine with you 
at the end of the day when they're taking off your makeup. And we sort of struck a bargain like that and, you know, ended up becoming really very close. And he, to me, is like one of the greatest, biggest hearted actors around. You have two things on your uh, CV that always kind of surprised me, and I'm curious how they kind of came to be. The first is uh, Dolly and Disney, a date with Destino. So here's what happened. After, you know, when, when like low-budget films became kind of harder and harder to finance for me, and, you know, I'd get to do a movie every few years, I had to still make enough money to survive. Uh, I kind of went to work uh, as a freelancer with a company called EMC that's run by a, an old, old friend of mine named Barbara Tonys, who had been the marketing person at Empire, who kind of was responsible for Ghoulies, They'll Get You in the End and, you know, television poster and all of that. And her company produces like behind the scenes and DVD bonus content and documentaries for Disney films. So, you know, I started making documentaries and, you know, kind of documentaries and little kind of poetic short films about, you know, the history of the Disney studio and the, and uh, a lot of the artists from the classic days of Disney. And one of the documentaries that sort of came through that company was uh, Disney and Dali, a date with Destino about, uh, the short Destino that, uh, Disney hired Dali to come and try to produce a surrealistic animated film back in the forties. And the, the documentary had been kind of, a lot of interviews had been shot and a couple of different companies had tried to finish it, but never could quite get their handle on the story. And so the Disney executives that we work with uh, brought that film to, to us. And I loved Dolly from, you know, my college days. And I said, yes, I'd love to take that on. So I worked for six months or so and kind of found the story within that, uh, within all the material that had been shot already and went went to Spain and shot at Dolly's house and, and at the, at his museum in Figueres and shot another interview to kind of tie it all together. So that was my, that was like one of the most fun documentaries that I've gotten to work on. And then years and years later, I was still doing uh, more of those Disney behind the scenes, little movies and ended up doing a few pieces with Walt's daughter, Diane Disney Miller, who started the Walt Disney Family Museum up in San Francisco and uh, got to know her. And um, before she died, one of the exhibitions that they wanted to produce there at the Walt Disney Family Museum was the story of Disney and Dolly's friendship and collaboration. And the Disney executive David Jessen, who had brought the documentary to me initially, suggested that they hire me to curate that exhibition. So that set me off into another world of like two years of working with the Dali Museum in St. Petersburg, Florida, and the Walt Disney Company and the Animation Research Library at Disney. And the Walt Disney Family Museum to curate this exhibition of um, Disney and Dolly, Architects of the Imagination. And so that was like 
to me, I sort of a, a, took it on as a challenge of this is going to be an art exhibition, but it's going to have a lot of video components and it's going to be like walking through a documentary, you know, like you're live and walking through the documentary. So, so we were able to produce that and it, you know, turned out to be a really beautiful exhibition at the family museum and then moved on to the Dali museum in in Florida for another six month run. Yeah. It was like really a great experience for me, you know, something completely different from what I'd been used to. Was it kind of the same uh, way that you got involved with the uh, the the Hugo and uh, the George Millet documentary that you did? Yeah, basically that company. Uh, we do Disney, a lot of Disney stuff, and then through a, a friend of ours who's a who's kind of an old friend of of um, Marty's, um, we've gotten to do several of Marty's films too. And so that's that's like really a pleasure, you know. And what are you working on these days? Uh, right now, I have a supernatural shocker of a movie that I'm trying to get financed, and uh, still doing uh, Disney documentaries, and uh, trying to start a kind of a nonprofit organization for cancer, teenage cancer patients that would kind of. Uh, utilize documentary filmmaking techniques and teach them. So that's kind of like, that's what I'm doing. Basically. I try to keep busy. Yeah. Cause otherwise I would go completely insane. But, um, yeah, you know, it's like, uh, uh, I wish there was more, you know, financing to be had for making, you know, sh- genre movies still. Uh, and you know, maybe that'll come through one of these days. Well, they keep saying, oh, it's so easy to make movies now. And it's like, yeah, not really. Yeah, not. I mean, it is. and it, But if you're used to a certain level of uh, technology around you and actors around you, you still have to have some, some uh, money to make it happen. Well, Ted, thank you so much for your time today. This has been terrific. Oh, good, Mike. I hope it uh, yields you something that's useful, you know. Right after Better Off Dead came out, I know you'd done a uh, TV series called The Insider somewhere around that time as well. What do you remember about getting the role in Terrorvision? As I progressed in my career, when I originally was cast, I was cast as more of my myself, playing a young girl, just you know, a young girl in a situation, whether it's Amityville and like you know, a haunted house, or um, or even with Better Off Dead a little bit, just. You know, that was a little bit more, I'm still a young girl, but I'm a little bit more character-y. So the thing for me was when I started my career, you know, I mean, certainly like cast and directors and people, when they see you, they're looking to say, where do you fit in a story emotionally, you know, looks wise, voice wise, what can we have you play within a, a, within a story? So I really always had um, a great imagination and I loved, uh, I loved playing characters. What happened with, Terrorvision was, I had done a lot of roles that were closer to who I was as a person. By the time I got to Terrorvision, 
I was so fortunate to be able to play a character that was so extreme. And also because I was older, I was able to play that character um, with more commitment and fully. So it's funny, like I've always been attracted to roles as opposed to necessarily the in project. There's always been like, I know there's some actors and they go, oh my gosh, I really want to do a great film. I want a great, great movie. I wanted to say something. And, you know, everybody is attracted to acting for different reasons. For me, I was always looking for interesting characters to play. And because I was considered, I guess, attractive, they, you know, I, people wouldn't normally see me as a character actress. They'd want me to just play the ingenue or, you know, the girl in the story who falls in love. And, and um, so I was given a lot of, you know, boyfriends and, and romance and all that, which is, I'm not complaining. It was great. <laughs> um, but I, I, my imagination is, is big and um, I'm very creative and I always really felt like I wanted to do character acting and, and actually, honestly, like character acting really is, I mean, if you, if, when you're young, if you're, if you're at all pretty, they're going to try to get you to be the main lead role. But those characters are usually a little bit bland and generic because they, they sort of have to, I mean, there, there, there is, is a purpose for it, but they, it keeps the story. Like it's like, they're the, uh, I would say the cake and, and all the character actors are like the frosting and the decoration. So you have to stay pretty even. And you're like the, the you're like the meaning of the center of the story. And so sort of everyone around you is doing this great character acting around your sort of more, I would say, uh, I wouldn't, it's not generic, but it's more like you have to be more without a lot of color, like more general, like more basic. And then what happens is um, obviously your character will go through a character arc, but when you're young, it's not required. And then as you get older, um, as a female actress, you know, obviously you're experiencing more in your life. So the characters you play are richer. And so um, you have to have more training. You have to have more experience to do that. And your acting expectations are higher because people want to see more from you. So and, and this, you know, you just asked a simple question, but I'm giving you a more complicated answer. Um, and it's like, we're talking about terror vision. What I want to say is that I had, was really fortunate in my career that I was able to play the just the girl character and then as I went through the years I got to show people more of what I could do and that had to do with my personality and my imagination um creating characters um so by the time I got to Susie Putterman most people were like oh my gosh why would you do this movie like it's like so over the top it's cartoony you know whatever well yes it was live action cartoon and it was something that was stylized and over the top but all of us who were actors in it we were like progressive actors. I mean, honestly, like Mary Warnall's like, she's a cult actress, you know, she's just a real, I mean, we're not talking about people who, and you know, Garrett uh, Graham, you know, these are people who've been in the business forever, but when we, we all knew that this was a parody of the eighties and we all thought it was hilarious. And so when we did it, we knew we were live action cartoon. I mean, we knew it was just like, and that wasn't even like a thing then, like today you, I could say that and people will understand what I'm saying, but then Nobody knew that. And again, it was made in 1989. So people didn't even know that it was uh, a parody of the 80s. They, they, we were in the 80s and then they thought, well, this is just a bad movie. I don't get it, right? And you're like, no, no, you don't understand. Everything we're doing is a nod to something happening in the 80s. Playing that character of, of Susie Putterman, answer to your question, 
when I got the script, I was so excited because I thought, oh my gosh, I would never, ever have been cast in this role had it been like the early 80s. Never. I would have been, they would have been like, no, we need somebody who's really punky and 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 quirky and they wouldn't have seen it in me. And I was so fortunate. I, I must say that maybe the work I did before alerted directors to me. And then they said, well, we want to see what Diane can do. Um, or maybe they just liked me from a film I did and they wanted to work with me. But seriously, like when I did television and I walked in, like when I was going to do that audition, I think my hair was short and curly. I think it was after Better Off Dead. And I did not look punky. And, but what I did was when I went to the audition, I just dressed it totally and I acted totally like, I mean, oh my gosh, like I was really, what I did was I took that valley girl talk, like whatever. And then I added that like, um, punky look. And so again, it's the parody of the eighties. And I think one of the reasons why I booked it is because I understood that and I got that sense of humor and I got what the director was trying to do. So that's very gratifying to a director when his actors get the material. Gosh, I'm trying to think how old I was when I did it because maybe 27 or 26 or something when I did that film. And that was such a, a freeing character. And I just had a blast. I mean, just playing her, playing Susie was so much fun. And I was really, again, so excited that I was able to be cast in that because it wasn't something that I obviously looked like. And even my personality, I'm not a punky person, but I have a really good sense of humor. And I um, also like I'm I'm not edgy on the outside, but I'm a maverick on the inside. And I like to push myself and I like to do things that are um, unexpected and fun. So there you go. You worked a lot. Well, you worked a lot with everybody in the film, but especially with John Grise. What was he like to work with? Jonathan Grise, I called Jonathan. Okay. Um he's the best. In fact, I recently, um, I would say within the last couple of years had to, uh, do some interview. We did a television actually, um, interview for, I guess like special features or after the, you know, after a film you do, uh, the talking about the film and I ran into him and it was so great seeing with him. We just like hugged each other and we were just like, Oh my gosh, how are you? And it was just like back then, you know, totally connected working with him was so easy and he's so fun and he's so loose and like relaxed as an actor and but he plays od with such seriousness right so like it's like i'm like od like oh my gosh like like oh my god like i was like what are we gonna do like you know like that kind of like upbeat high voice and he's like Oh, like d- down here in his like voice in his registers like oh my gosh like he's like so serious and um I think it was just really fun seeing those two dynamics, those characters come together. You know, we're just acting it, but I think it, it made a cute couple. And it also made like, I mean, I just thought his character was adorable. He's, he's, you know, not that smart, but at the same time, he's good hearted. And I just think his character was hilarious. I mean, his lines, like, you know, uh, and, and the fact that we, the two of us, are left uh, with Sherman and the monster that we have to like deal with it. And I'm entrepreneurial and like, you know, we're going to make a million bucks and, and, you know, do that kind of thing. And, you know, and like, and then teaching the monster, like, this is, this is TV. It's almost as good as food, you know, like, uh, like, or this is music, 
you know, like, um, I think it was so, uh, just fun for us to act with each other and just play characters that were so over the top again, like characters that one would normally not have cast us in, but because we were imaginative and, you know, capable and were able to bring it, um, it was hilarious. And, and the director, by the way, everyone was laughing. Like everyone enjoyed watching the, sh- the scenes. The only thing we had a problem was we were shooting in Rome when we did it. And like the air, con- they'd have to shoot the, turn the air conditioning off or while we were shooting or it would die occasionally. And we would be so hot in those costumes. So it <laughs> really like, and then going, oh my gosh, we've got to do this again. It was like, it's so, so hot. And uh, uh, those three wigs that I had on top of my head. That was so much fun, but extremely hot. I know by this time you had worked with some pretty heavy hitters when it comes to your fellow actors. But I have to ask, was Mary Warnov intimidating at all? It's so funny you say that if she was intimidating because she wasn't to me. I really, it, some people said that she she is. Some people I've heard are intimidated by her. Um, I wasn't. In fact, I was, we had a really good relationship. Um, the thing about Mary that I felt was she's just upfront and she just says what she thinks. And she's really funny. Like she's a funny woman and she's so, so smart. And, um, I think it's just maybe if, if people have had anything with her, it's probably because she's just says what's on her mind, but straight on. So you might be surprised. Um, but uh, I I just thought she was a, a, a hoot, and we just had a great relationship when we did it. And um, I mean, I think what we did was a lot of side conversation, like, "Oh my gosh, I can't believe you know we're shooting this scene again. It's so hot," or like, "Oh my gosh, like you know this is hilarious. I can't believe you know Garrett is making us laugh on the sidelines, or you know, uh, look at this, you know, the artwork on the wall. Like, I can't believe the um, the set design people." did this art and it was like actually a misunderstanding. The director said he wanted it to be like a pleasure palace, but because we were in Italy, I guess they took it to mean like a sexual palace. And so they did all these naked drawings on the wall. So it could not be shown to an audience. And you can't even do like a mystery science theater with it because the artwork on the walls is sexual and you, so it, it's got to always be rated R. But I really think that the movie should have been PG 13 because it would have had more exposure. You know, it's just more fun. So, the, but, the, but it's so sad. Like I would have loved uh television to be on a mystery science theater. Like when they make the comments about the film and show it, I would have loved that. Like that would have been amazing, but sadly because of the paintings, they can't do it. They can't take that out. So anyway, so maybe HBO will do a show like that without leaving it in. When I spoke to Garrett Graham about this film, he had nothing but fond memories of the actual locations in Italy, especially where you guys stayed. What do you remember about that? Garrett and Mary and I think Jonathan, I think they all stayed in the same hotel and with the director. I stayed in a hotel that was across from the Trevi Fountain, which was this tiny little itty-bitty hotel, but I think that I remember when we were at their hotel, although I, I think it was the same hotel. The reason why I left was because the hotel had, and it's hard to explain this, but you know how you'd have like, when you close the window, some, you know, uh, you know usually hotels have curtains, but for some reason, this hotel had 
like metal shades, but shade, but I mean, shades, like when you close them, it was like, you're in a prison. It was like, it wasn't like, okay. Like shades, you know how like there's like light, you turn like those metal uh, shades, whatever you can turn the knob and then they kind of open up. This wasn't that this was like a prison where like you, they close and it's, there's no light between them and they're not even, they just come down and it, it's like, blackout and i'm not exactly sure why the hotel had this but it it was struck us as so at least for me like um like insular looks that i i just remember those uh and thought mm, can't stay here can't do it just can't it's too freaky um and uh i had never been to italy so it worked out that i wanted was able to be more in the city but i don't know if i was just spoiled or if i just was like i just can't i just alone i can't stay here so um, but yeah, no, so I didn't have those wild times that they did. They maybe wanted to avoid staying in those rooms and maybe they got together in the, the main lobby and hung out and had a party, uh, every night, who knows? But, uh, unfortunately I missed those fun times. You said this is the first time you've been to Italy. Was this the first time you traveled for a film or had you done that before? Oh no, actually I traveled quite a bit. I was talking to my friend, Amanda Wiss, who was in better off, uh, dad who played Beth. And it was funny because she's done a lot of acting, in America, because um, I guess she had more of a, a sort of a American look or the blonde hair, blue eyes, whatever she had, like she was all her work was in the U.S. And because with me, like the dark hair, um, I maybe perhaps the curly hair, I traveled all over. I went to New Zealand and Australia. I went to Canada, shot some work I did. I went to Mexico. I went to um, I'm trying to think. um England. Um, yeah, traveled all over. But uh, Czechoslovakia, I was screen tested in there. It's a good Czechoslovakia. So it's like I did um, for Amadeus, of all things, so Czechoslovakia. Just uh, traveled a lot. In But Rome, I went to do Terrorvision. We shot it in a month. And I worked only 16 days out of the month which was unbelievable. So I was able to, you know, get to go to Italy and like, you know, sightsee while I was there, which was what a gift, like as a, you know, young person to be able to go and travel and, and, you know, look at a country and just enjoy it. And then, um, and then after that, I did return to Rome um, to shoot Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventures. So that's when the second time I went, that was supposed to be England, but we shot it in Rome. So, or Italy, so um, that's my, but yeah, traveling, I did a lot of traveling as an um, actress. Had you worked with special effects as much as you did in that one? Oh, the special effects. I mean, you know, what was great about that was in television, because there was a real live monster, we were so fortunate to actually see that happening in real life because a lot of times I think today you don't get to experience the actual monster. You have to react to something that's a green screen maybe. Um, so it was very exciting for me to be able to see the monster and the monster was so cute in real life. I mean, it was big. It was probably to me like, I guess maybe seven feet or six, yeah, six feet, maybe six feet, seven feet tall covered with goo. They kept having to cover it. Like the goo would dry up. Um, but it was super cute. And then there would be these guys running the mach- you know, the, the monster, like using, um, like reacting. The only thing is that when we acted with the monster, 
it didn't have the sound effects and because we would just see them like moving the mouth or having their hand in the tongue and moving the tongue around. But we didn't hear the monster sounds because they did that in post. So that was the only part of it that was like, there's a element of like magic that happens that the actor has to just kind of, you know, make believe. But it, you know, when I saw in the film, I was like, Oh my gosh, it makes the greatest sound. It was really adorable. I'm curious recently, have you had to do a lot of uh, green screen acting? Well, nice for you to say, you're not going to believe this. I actually have just worked on a film. I've actually been acting in the last year. I've actually done four films in the last year. Three of them are thrillers, one's a comedy. I can't get into the detail of this, but I actually did a film, and it's a remake of Amityville, The Possession, and it's called The Haunting on Long Island, The Amityville Murders. And I play Louise DeFeo, so it's based on the actual murders, and it's amazing. This film is amazing, and there is green screen with this film. We had to do some reactions to things uh, in the film that I would say it was interesting to experience that, um, but the film is it's going to be unbelievable. Like, I am so excited about this film coming out, but I, it may not be out till next not this Halloween, but maybe next Halloween. I, I don't know. That's, that's what they, they told me. Um, but you're the first um, to hear about it. Mm-hmm. So there you go. How did your experience on that compare to working on Amityville 2? I mean, which was one of your first films. I can't get into detail because that's like their, like I, they've asked me questions about that. But what I'll say, you know, like, because that's part of their, you know, me coming back and, and experiencing both of them. But I'll, I will say that, the amazing thing was when I did Amityville, the first one, I had, you know, I was, it was based on the DeFeo murders. So it was interesting that I guess they had to do with rights. They didn't want to pay the rights to do the DeFeo murders, to pay for all those rights. So half the movie of Amity, the possession is about the murders. And the second half um, is about the, an exorcism, uh, the, the guy, the boy becomes possessed. And in this film, it is, all about the DeFeo murders. It's the whole, like, it is, it's, it's, so the whole thing is, so even just as an acting standpoint, I was much more excited in a way to do this one because that to me is where it's really juicy. Then, I mean, t- to play now my own mom, playing Britannia Alda's part, basically, um, it's a, it's a different movie and yet there are some similarities and um, it's, I think it's going to be fascinating for people on many different levels because it is a time period piece also. So that makes it more interesting as well. At least this one, the the film that I just did is a time period piece. So whereas the Amityville, the possession was not, that was a, like it was sort of more of a generic film. Like it could have been anywhere. It could be any, you know, it's a horror film. Um, The house is possessed, but it's not based on more facts. This one, this film is uh, like a, it's a docudrama. So it's got reality mixed with drama and it's intense. So, so I really do. I actually, to tell you the truth, I love horror and drama. I mean, I, I love that, that world. Um, I was, what happened was I was acting in my daughter's films and I was doing comedy for her. So then I thought, well, I'm going to do comedy for her, but if somebody wants to do something dramatic, I would, I would do that because I like I'm doing her films for her, but if there's something else. So over the years, you know, I did I did things for her and then 
all of a sudden people, they heard that I like drama, uh, horror. And I also like love to do sci-fi. Like I'd love to do Star Trek, something along those lines too, because I haven't like, that's sort of like almost, um, it's not terror vision, but it's also, it's pushing the idea of the, the characters that I've never played and something I'd love to play, um, like a commander in the ship or something, you know, something like that kind of a role. Um, and I think it's really interesting because I'm not, um, what somebody you consider casting off my personality in real life, but I can play it. So that's like some kind of, that's an exa- example of something. Tell me about some of these other movies that you're in. Cause I see you, you said that you're in at least four things that are coming out. Can you tell me about Wally got wasted? Now here's an example of a comedy. And the reason I did this comedy was for um, a friend of mine who his name is Adam Ward and he's the, the part of the, the writer, but he's the, um, He's acting in it as well. And the director, um, he directed, I think he's directed this one as well. And he is, he came to me and he said, I want you to do a cameo in it. Um, so I went and did a, a cameo for that film. So that's just like a scene, but it's funny. It's really, and it's, it's a funny part of the film. Um, and that's a very funny movie because that is based on the 80s film or the idea was conceived from uh, Weekend at Bernie's from the 80s. So it's just, it's Weekend and Birdies, but set in today's time with guys who are in their 20s as opposed to their teens. It's funny. And the writing is really funny. So that's, I, I don't, I think that's coming out next year. Um, and then this other movie I did called Waking Nightmare. Uh, wonderful film. Like, so, it's so scary. That film will also come out next year. That film is a, a family and I, we, I have a daughter who is played by Shelley Regner and Shelley is um, she's in all the pitch perfect movies. She plays one of the Bellas and she is uh, in the story waking nightmare. She commits murders in her sleep. And I, as her mother and my husband who is played by a Jamison Newlander who is in lost boys, we sort of try to help her because, you know, she's got this condition and we're like worried about her because she's committing these murders and we don't, you know, we don't know it at first and we find out. Um, and it's got a very juicy ending, but no, I don't think anyone's done someone committing murders in their sleep. So it's really scary. You're going to get to see things I'm doing that are going to really freak you out. <laughs> it's like, like, that's what I love about these movies because it's like, you're going to see me do things and you're like, what? Like, did I just, did she just do that? What did she? So um, again, I'm very excited about that film too, because I'm doing roles and things that I you would not normally expect me to do, which is great. And so that should be coming out next year. And then this is a funny thing. I'm actually going next week to Pittsburgh. I'm being flown to as uh, opening the premiere of a film called The Final Interview, and this is a film that actually started me doing the horror. It started last year and the director's Fred Vogel. And what I really love about this is it's sort of like an experimental film. It was like, it came from an idea that he had. um, And I, and again, it's an idea like you'd think people have made this movie already, but it's the final hours before uh, someone is executed. um, Who's, who is a serial murderer. And it's, it's he's the the director shot it like the reason why I say experimental is basically he he talked to me about it and he said I want to do a a film but I want only like three main actors and I'm going to shoot it sort of like a play 
And I went, oh, my God, this sounds really interesting. And then he gave me the script and I could not put it down. It's one of those things like when you watch in like real time, you it's so exciting and you can't you can't stop watching it because it's in real time. And so you feel like if you you just look down, you're going to miss what's you know, you're going to miss something. So um, he we shot the film. I flew to Pittsburgh. We did all these night shoots and I gosh, we finished it really quick. He's going to be uh, having a premiere in Pittsburgh at the Hollywood Theater. But I think it's going to do the film fest circuit um, because Fred does. I mean, he's done like a lot of horror, but this is a little different. Uh, and I, it's a really like cool psychological thriller. Um, there's some blood, but there's not a lot. But it's more tension. There's a lot. It's very gripping. So I highly recommend it. It's to me like I really enjoyed it um, because of the tension. And also, it also takes place in the 80s. So it's to me like I. that's one of the reasons he thought of me doing the part was because he wanted to have an actress who could, had, had an 80s look. And so with my curly hair, it just worked out beautifully. So. It also ties in, by the way, um, I don't know if you knew this, but last time I spoke to you, I said I was going to come out with a book. And this year I have. Um, And the book I've come out with um, is my second book and it's on Amazon. And this book is called The Excellent Curls of the Last American French Exchange Babe of the 80s. You don't have to remember the title. It's too long. I wouldn't be able to. Um, Not even I could remember it. This is an amazing book. My first one was amazing because it talked about my career and all the different aspects of how I became an actress. How do you start with nothing? You're not, don't have any connections. You don't, you don't know anyone. You're, you're, you know, you don't have any experience and you learn and you become a star in a movie. How does that even happen? And I have chapters in my first book on all the movies I did. This book I came out and I wasn't even going to write a second book, but a lot of things came together in my life that sort of made me go, oh my gosh, I have got to write this. And this book, the reason why it's called Curls is because during the 80s, I realized that and it, while it was happening, I actually experienced I being the first person to bring curly hair into the 80s as a young teenager to make curly hair beautiful. I'm not saying I'm the first person to have curly hair, nor am I the first person to wear curly hair as an adult because, you know, there was Lucille Ball and Bernadette Peters. They were adults. But if you were a teenager, you would never be caught dead wearing curly hair because it was considered frizzy or unkempt um, or it was just like the homely girl, the not pretty girl. And all of a sudden, all these pieces came and I remembered everything. And I wrote this. So it is an homage to curly hair. It's how curly hair happened for young girls, how I did this film called The Last American Virgin, which we talked about before. And that film kickstarted all the curly hair of the 80s, that the perms, dirty dancing, um, flash dance. It opened the door for ethnicity. Um, it, It just opened doors and people would never suspect this small little independent film did it. But I know it because not only did I experience it, but once that film came out, I got leads over and over and over again in places that I would normal I would never have been able to. I had no business getting leads. Um, but it was because the look was something that was suddenly 
and perhaps backed by people who wanted more ethnicity. Um, perhaps it was, uh, it just found its time. But again, it's, we're talking about teenagers, not full-on adults, but even like Barbara Streisand, like all these women like are getting like curly hair. Um, the only person I would say who had um, curly hair as a teen before me was Amy Irving. And Amy Irving in the movie, oh, it's gosh, it's the horror film, um, Carrie. She had curly hair in that film and it was beautiful. And no one mentioned anything about it. No one said, oh, she, and she played like the popular girl. But the difference was she was kind of older looking and it didn't hit then. She had her curly hair, but it wasn't the 80s. The curls did not hit in the 70s. And that was like 76. So when I came out in the 80s, that's when it hit. Virgin came out in 82. I, we actually finished the movie in 81. And bam, like all of a sudden, curly hair everywhere. I was working all the time. So I would have to say that my career was given an opportunity and then created more opportunities for other actresses. So how, whereas Brooke Shields, she brought the dark hair and the, the eyebrows in to style that helped me get work. Then when I brought curly hair in that gave like Julia Roberts work and um, you know, uh, gosh, um, I'm trying like, there's just uh, so many actresses who were able to have that ability to suddenly wear curly hair because it was now popular. And, my film, the one I was in, all these guys were watching this movie and then suddenly they wanted to date a girl with curly hair. And this is like unheard of. This wasn't happening. Um, you know, a guy wouldn't normally go for somebody with dark curly hair. They'd go with a blonde, blue eyes. I mean, that was generally the American look. But suddenly dark curly hair became the American look. And that's just so if you're interested, I mean, the book that I wrote has tons of photos and it's got it, it has amazing details and you just can't find it anywhere. I mean, uh, all I can tell you is the books I write are moments in time and information that you will not get anywhere else. It's just it's the coolest. They're, they're cool. And I've gotten nothing but rave reviews on them. So um, it, again, 2017, even um, one of the beautiful things about this new book, which I've also forgot to mention, is um, Brett Ratner, who is a huge fan of Last American Virgin, wrote my foreword for me. And it's an amazing foreword. You can't even believe it. I, I said to him, I want you to write a foreword because you, he loves Virgin so much and he loved the curly hair. And he almost, he almost married an actress because she had hair like mine. She was looked like me. And for, I mean, it influences life so much, that film. So if you like the 80s or if you like um, acting, you know, like interest in how things happen in the, you're an actor and you're interested in how things happen in acting, or if you have curly hair, or if you're just interested in like, in, you know, nostalgia of film, this book is amazing. I just highly recommend it. Wouldn't tell you to get it. Cause if I don't say it's good, like I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I have to buy it myself. I have to want to look at a story myself and I don't want to have sell something that I go, eh, you know, that's, you know, people just buy it. It's not my, not who I am. So there you go. There's my recommendation. But anyway, I will miss a question. <laughs> Did I answer it? Well, I know it's uh, available on Amazon. Is that the best place for people to get it? Uh, yeah, I think so. I mean, you could get it through Barnes & Noble online, I think, as well. But what I say is if you buy the book, you can also eat once you buy it i will assign it for free if you want to mail it to me you go to uh, dianefranklin80sbook.com 
And if you send it to me, I'll sign it for free because you bought it, which is really nice. Um, or you can bring it to any of the conventions that I'm going to be going to. And I will sign it for free there, too. So all you have to do is buy it and I'll sign it. I talked to uh, John Grise a couple months ago, and people are just like, oh, my God, I love Terror Vision. It's like, he is so great in that movie. He is so freaking funny. He's just great. And, and he never, you know, he's so totally into that character. It's, it's just really, it's a joy to watch. Everybody seems to be firing on all cylinders. Yeah, and I was struck by um, Diane Franklin. There you go. She said at one point, Oh, Garrett was really easy to work with because he was just so natural. Natural? Hey, yay, 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 yay. I don't know what she was looking at, but I saw myself mugging my brains out, you know. And she thinks that's natural. I wonder what kind of home life she has. Well, Grace said it too in, in his interview. He said at a certain point he was just so sure he was overdoing it, you know, that he was too far over the top. And Ted Nicolau said to him, no, 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 don't worry, don't worry. Trust me, you're doing fine, which is the same thing he said to me, because I had said the same thing to him. Ted, I, this is crazy. I mean, I'm so, I'm overdoing it. My factor of about 100%. No, no, it's great, it's great. So he obviously had the whole thing in his mind, you know, Ted. He was holding it together in his mind. He knew exactly what he wanted and how he wanted it to get it and what he wanted it to come out sounding like. So we're all, miraculously, we're all on the same page. Everybody is on the same page in that movie. The cast I'm talking about. We're all on that sort of hyperbolic level. Well, and then it helps that the sets are just so cartoony looking. The sets are so crazy, man. They're so crazy. Well, it was, so that's like American porn movie glitz filtered through an Italian sensibility. It's so crazy. That jacuzzi, that massive jacuzzi, and, and the, the, the art on the walls, the soft porn art on the walls in every freaking room. And, and the, the Roman motif, the classic Roman motif, nutty, really nutty. I've never been in anything else that bore the remotest resemblance to that movie. Had you shot stuff in Italy before that? No, no. And in fact, that was... Uh, one of the inducements for taking the gig, because someone else, I can't remember who else, said the same thing that I was saying. Is, well, it, it looks like a pretty nasty little piece of work, but hey, it's shooting in Italy. Hey, we'll be in Rome. Sure. Hey, let's go. And uh, at the time, my uh, firstborn son was three months old, which is a very portable age. Uh, there was no reason for us not to go. Uh, all three of us. I mean, if it had been a question for me of leaving my wife and my brand new son at home, I might have had 
big time second thoughts, you know. But since I could take the, her and the baby along, it was, and plus it was in Rome. It was in Rome, you know. That's the inducement. I love Rome. I'd been there before and just been crazy about it. So why not? Let's go. Well, I want to know how it was working with Mary Bornov. Well, Mary and I were old friends already, each other for a while, and uh, had worked on a Paul Bartel film together. And uh, we'd actually met socially before we worked together, I think. Yeah. We'd met through uh, mutual friends uh, in L.A. and uh, hung out in a group together, you know. So she and I liked each other already. We sort of tuned into each other's level already. We were on the same wavelength from jump. We were hand in glove right away from the beginning. And Mary is, well, you know as well as I do, there's no one else like her. She's so no-nonsense. I love it. Yeah. She takes everything just exactly as it comes at her, you know. She's uh, the last thing from a bullshit artist. So uh, we had a great time. And Mary, Mary, I don't know what she told you about being in Rome, but she spent all her per diem at the Armani store, home with the, you know, a sack full of clothes that I assume she could wear for a couple of seasons, maybe, and then they were out. Style uh, wise, they were out. Uh, I, I bought an Armani suit while I was there. I figured, what the hell, we not? You know, I went to the uh, Armani Exchange, the cheapo store, and bought this thing with the shoulders out the ear. I got home and put it on. It made me look like Frankenstein. And I, I never wore it. I never, ever wore it. But uh, so now, I, but at least I can say, oh, yeah, I had an Armani suit. How was uh, Bert Remsen to work with? I didn't really have that much to do with Bert. Uh, he worked with the kid all the time. It was just the two of them, basically. And incidental moments with the, with Bert is all I had. Like when the five of us turn up in bed together. But he's a solid pro, you know. He was, and he was game for everything. That was the the that's as lucky as Ted got right there. Is that everybody was game? Nobody said no. Nah, I'm not doing that. Everybody was up for anything, you know. And that made all the difference. This was a really early film for Ted's. Yes. Oh, yes. I, I something I was watching last night. Thought, is could this possibly be his first movie? I think it might be. Because he was working for Charlie Band. As an editor, I believe. I think this is the first film they gave him to direct, Charlie and Albert. Uh, I don't know. I may have met Albert, you know, Big Daddy. I may have met him once, but there was Charlie who was around most of the time. He's the same age as Ted, and uh, I, I think it was Charlie who greenlighted Ted as the director. And I actually worked with Ted again much later on a children's film that he shot in Bucharest, Romania, in the dead of winter. <laughs> Which wasn't exactly tourist season in Bucharest. She was. Did you get uh, much time to? I know you, you shopped at Armani, but did you, did you get time to uh, kind of see more of Rome while you were there? We got my wife and I got there early. We got there a week early, uh, it, so that we could uh, spend some time in Florence. And then there were occasions. Uh, there were days off, you know, days that I didn't have to work when he was shooting Bert and the Kid, stuff with the monster and stuff, you know. We were able to do a, a good amount of tourism in Rome. And uh, Randy Brooks and her, I don't know, husband, boyfriend, one or the other, they, <laughs> they were, well, let me start the right place here. When when we got there, when uh, Didi and I, my wife, when we got there, they put us in the equivalent of a sort of uh, 
like a, a not a holiday yet, but more upscale than that. Uh, like a, a big Marriott sort of, uh, in a, in a, an industrial suburb of Rome, uh, which sort of split the difference between the city and where the studio was, I guess. And they put, and you know, it was marble, everything, marble floor, marble walls, marble furniture, super glitzy. And I guess they figured, well, you know, nutty Americans, you know, they like, uh, there's camera stuff, so we're going to put... And when Mary, among others, found out that that's where we were, she said, no, 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 no. You tell them you've got to get away from there right now and come out here to the beach with us. And without knowing any more about it than that, but just trusting Mary, I said, all right, absolutely. So we demanded to be moved to the beach with everybody else. And it was a really, really nice beach resort, super casual kind of... uh motel slash hotel, you know, one of the places where the Romans go for uh, a break in uh, midwinter or whatever. I don't know. Uh, but it had a great big pool and it was right on the ocean and it was extremely groovy and, as, as Mary said, very casual. Um, but uh, Randy and her husband stayed in the marble glitz palace in, in, uh, in town. And that says all you need to know really about the difference in aesthetic between Randy and the rest of us. And we kept saying to her, well, you got to, you know, go into the city, go into the, the, the Centro Storico and, and see some historic buildings, see some paintings. You know, there's a church you can walk into that has three great Caravaggio paintings in it. You know, a church, you could just walk in and see it and, and uh, kept telling her stuff like that. And she finally, the two of them finally did take some time on a day off to go in. Uh, and they went to Piazza called the Piazza del Popolo, which uh, has got uh, uh, the two beautiful matching buildings, like twin buildings, Renaissance buildings, uh, flanking the entrance to uh, one of the long boulevards, you know. And uh, when Randy and her husband came back, we looked, well, how, say, how'd you, how'd you like it? Isn't it great? And they're coming with, well, everything is so old. Stuff really, that stuff really needs to be, we went to the Piazza de Popola, that stuff really needs to be painted. I mean, there's just a difference in aesthetic there, if you see what I mean. But she's a nice, very nice woman, sweet woman. The stuff that I had to do with her, uh, it wasn't really, didn't amount to much in the way of acting scene together. And me mostly drooling on her boobs, you know. And uh, I didn't even have to get into that murky jacuzzi pool, I'm happy to say. But that was actually that one well, on the subject. That was my favorite line in the movie. Look, what the hell did that homo do to the jacuzzi? And that's not the kind of line you get to utter twice in a career. Right. And, you know, everybody got along with everybody else. Ninety-nine percent of my stuff was with uh, uh, Mary and, and just sort of glancingly with the other two. I mean, that's how I remember it. You know what I mean? Because Mary and I had such a good time together. But obviously, I had scenes with the other couple, and. Uh, and that wonderful television repairman was just so great, that guy. I wish I could remember his name. Was that Sonny Carl Davis? Uh, maybe. Uh, the, he kept calling me Mr. P. Well, Mr. P, I told you not to get the CR-100. He was great. Fantastic. And again, it's one of those things where if you just took his performance by itself, you would think, oh, God, this guy's going totally overboard. Mogarama. But in the context of the movie, he was right on the button. You know what I mean? 
Yeah, really fun. Really fun. Really fun. I love to watch his stuff whenever I look at the movie. That's what I wait for is him. How is it revisiting a film that you made 30-some years ago? It, it's a funny thing about seeing movies that you made. Uh, it, they're still present for you. And, and this is how I feel about it anyway. They're still present for you in some way. It, it doesn't. You don't think of it in, in terms of having been a million years ago. At least I don't. I found this to be true of, of uh, others in my movies, like Phantom of the Paradise and, and used cars and stuff. Uh, every movie exists in its own little universe, you know, and uh, some universes remain more accessible than others, and and uh, that that movie is definitely in its own little universe, no question about it. <laughs> it's, it's not a question of sort of remembering what you did, feeling it again. It's not a question of feeling how you felt on that day when you did that scene. It's just that I don't know how to describe it exactly. I'm not doing a very good job of describing it. But it's, it's just, it's part of you in a way that, that keeps it from being too foreign or too weird, you know, or too old, I should say. I mean, God knows there have been stuff of mine, things, TV shows. I mean, for instance, I, uh, I saw my episode of the A-Team not long ago. Uh, happened to cross it by mistake on the two. Uh, I watched that. that. That's not good. <laughs> and that's not good. Uh, and that's something I would just as soon not have seen, you know. Standard 70s television acting. Very bad. Very bad. But that's the exception, not the rule. Do you ever uh, run across things where you just have forgotten that you were even in them? Oh, yeah. Well, you know, I do a lot of uh, 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 autograph uh, conventions. And uh, uh, you know what I mean? Those things where you, you, you sit at a table and you sign a 8 by 10 and uh, somebody pays you 20 bucks for it. And people come up to me with pictures and screenshots from stuff that I'd forgotten I'd done. TV episodes and occasional weird little movies and so on. Um, and I've been taken by surprise a couple of times by people who've shown me stuff. Like, what the hell is this? Oh, don't you remember? And this is the episode you did of bizarre stuff and not exactly highlights of one's career. So, yeah, it does happen. I mean, I did do a ton of TV guest shots, a ton of them. So it's inevitable that somebody's going to come up with something that I've forgotten. But also, by the same token, you discover that certain things still have or have developed a, a, a fan base. You know, for instance, that Babylon 5 was it was good, you know, and had good sets and good intelligence behind it and so on. Didn't last very long. But that show has a following. You know, there were people who came up and addressed me as my character in Babylon 5. You know, I had no idea what they were talking about. But they didn't do it. And they knew the show as well as if they'd seen it the day before. So you never know. You never know what's going to grab people's fancy. That's the thing. I mean, there's certain things that you know as you're doing them are going to be big, like used cars. You know that's going to work. You know that that was funny. Um, but other things, like, well, television is a good example. You just you can't handicap how it's going to go over with the public. I mean, if you would ask me at the time, Everybody's acting was so broad, and and uh, 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 Ted was so sort of youthfully exuberant that I would have said that this is going to be a disaster, you know. And, and uh, John Price said the same thing. 
that no way this is going to work, but you never know. When I was growing up, a lot of my friends were skateboarders, and when I would uh, you know, see you in things, I'd be like, oh yeah, that's the guy from Phantom of the Paradise, and this movie, that movie, and they'd be like, oh, he's the guy from The Search for Animal Chin. There's a credential I am happy to have, man. There is some good street cred. Even my, my children are wowed by that one. You were in Animal Chin? No, man, that's me. I was down with the Stacy Peralta and the Bones Brigade. I don't know how Stacy found me. I don't know why he picked me through some mutual friend or something, maybe. But he just called up and asked me if I would do it, you know. And uh, I, I, was, I had been a boarder in the very, very first wave when skateboards were solid one-inch planks of oak with uh, uh, roller skate wheels on them, uh, trucks and wheels, nasty little things. And they had no flex, and you couldn't steer them at all. Uh, and if you got started down a hill, the only way uh, to stop was to bail out onto the concrete, you know. But still, I felt, I felt an affinity for uh, skateboarding and skateboarders. I mean, I wish I still had that thing now. It would be a great trophy, that board. I have no idea where it went. I knew enough to know that skateboarding was hip. So, yeah, I jumped at it. I wouldn't I wouldn't have passed that opportunity up. Yeah, my, I got a bunch of uh, T-shirts uh, from production and gave them to my children. Uh, pictures uh, of, of Animal Chin and the legend. Have you seen him? <laughs> a variety of uh, weird-out Venice Beach colors. That was cool. That was fun. That, that shoot was fun. Well, I'm glad you saw that, man. I'm glad that had a, a life. That's cool. You are in one that I've have seen a lot of praise for that I need to track down, which is old boyfriends. Yeah. Now there's a picture of mine that I would be happy to see again. That I, if, something that I put on my resume for a number of years and then it fell off, and I've just really never thought about it since. Uh, it was uh, Talia Shire and me, and well, I say that as though I was one of the main characters in it. I wasn't. I was just one of her old boyfriends, you know. But uh, it had, I can't remember how well it was received or anything. I don't think it did big-time business at the box office. But again, it was one of those enjoyable, small shoots that I had a really good time doing. And uh, I didn't think about how well the movie was going to do. I mean, that just sort of signifies my uh, approach to my career. I never thought in terms of how uh, this film or that TV show was going to do, you know, it just, I, I either did it or I didn't. And uh, I didn't, it's probably why I never became a big star is I never put enough thought into these things. I never tried to construct a career, you know, picking the right projects and that shit. You know, last time we talked, I don't think I asked you about when you got grew up because I forgot that you have a Gross Point, Michigan connection. Yes, I do. Gross Point Farms, please. Yeah, I was born in New York, and uh, my father was a school teacher, and he kept getting better jobs in other places. Uh, he had been to uh, a boarding school in Massachusetts himself and had become friends with uh, a teacher there. And when that teacher got a job as headmaster of a school in uh, outside of St. Louis, a suburb of St. Louis, uh, my father, who at that point was working as a lawyer at the Port Authority in New York, called him up and said, give me a job teaching me so I can get the hell out of here. And he did. He, so he taught there for a while. And then from there, he went to uh, Gross Point, 
University School in Grosse Point. So we were there uh, in Grosse Point Farms for five years. And uh, and then from there, he got a, a headmaster job in Chicago. We were there for 10 years. But, uh, yeah, I remember Grosse Point fondly. You know, I, I, but there I was in this school with the science of the auto industry, young Edsel Ford and young Dodge and uh, so on, you know. Didn't mean a damn thing to me at the time. Well, I read you were even in, um, was it a DIA, Detroit Institute of Art Production, when you were here? I think that you might be able to count that as my first sort of legitimate acting gig. Yeah, uh, my uh, my mother signed me up for this uh, after-school course at the Art Institute. Oh, God, I, you know, deadly dope. Okay, everybody, let's be a tree. Oh, oh man, nightmarish. But then somebody walked in from another class and said, we need a couple of kids to play Rabbit's Friends and Relations in uh, this production of Winnie. And my hand went up straight up in the air, in the air so it had a life of its own. And miraculously, they picked me over the other kids. I don't know why. I guess I look more like a rabbit than anybody else. Uh, we did a couple of performances, uh, but that was it. I mean, I, you know, the bug had bit me, definitely. Felt completely at ease doing it. I had no stage fright. I had no problem learning my lines. It was just complete second nature. And that's, that's the earliest public performance that I can think of. Oh, Jesus, that's early enough, you know, fifth grade or something. So that, that got you into it. Well, it, it's just the same as it ever was. It just felt like a natural, natural thing to do, you know. And it seemed disconcerting or uh, so bizarre about it or anything. It just seemed like a completely natural thing to do. And uh, it's something that I actually wanted to do as opposed to pretending to be a tree. That remained true, that feeling about acting. Just complete second nature. One movie that just keeps coming up for me lately, the film Walker. How is that experience? unusual of cinema. Uh, that also shot in an interesting locale. We shot, That was shot in... in uh, uh, Managua, Nicaragua, and at that point, uh, Nicaragua was, was, was still a communist country, you know, and the Sandin- Sandinistas were still in control. Um, and uh, we we were put up in the the one luxury hotel left in all of Nicaragua uh, that was right down down the hill from uh, the dictator's Somoza's uh, bunker. It was just sort of a weird setting, but. That is the poorest place I've ever been to in my life. They had nothing. The Sandinese, the, the Nicaraguans, they had nothing. Big supermarket, you go in an aisle after empty aisle. Nothing, nothing, nothing. Then you come to one aisle that was full from one end to the other of gallon jugs of white vinegar. And then empty aisle, empty aisle, empty aisle. It was a bizarre feeling. And, Despite it all, the the, uh, the Nikas were incredibly charming and friendly people and very interested in us as Americans. My first day off, I took a, a jitney down to the beach, and I was walking along, and there was a group of them sitting in a circle around a communal bottle of rum. And when I say some of them, I mean like eight or ten of them within this one bottle of rum that they could afford. And they spotted me as a gringo, probably from a mile away, you know. And they waved me over, and uh, I had a little bit of um, uh, Beverly Hills made Spanish, and they had a little bit of English. So we had a political conversation, if you please. 
and they want to know why we had elected a bona fide lunatic to be the president. They were talking about Reagan, and they, they believed he was legitimately insane. They, were, they weren't being funny or, or, or uh, uh, making some kind of uh, 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 metaphor. They believed he was insane because they couldn't understand why else someone like that would spend his efforts embargoing the state of Nicaragua and keeping them from eating and having food and supplies and so on. Uh, but they were nice about it. The Nicas were very nice. And the, the, the movie itself was, well, the crew was much, largely Mexican, mostly Mexican. Uh, so they were far more sophisticated than the, uh, the, the locals. And uh, it was just, it was a weird sort of culture clash thing. And for one thing, there was a, a ton of cocaine around. I didn't partake. I cleaned it up by then. But, uh, it, it, you know, there was never really a finished script. Alex Cox, the director, got to the point where he was sort of frayed. You know, he was fraying at the ends like an old rope. He didn't know where he was going exactly or how to pull it together or how to tie it off. And he kept changing his mind about this and that and the other thing. I went because it was Nicaragua, which seemed incredibly cool. And uh, besides, I had this young family. I wanted to work. I wanted to make money. There wasn't very much money to be made on that picture, but I did get paid. I did some sightseeing and learned some stuff. The shot I remember, the sequence I remember, is that giant Soviet surplus helicopter landing in the church plaza. And the tail rotor just missing the church facade. Oh man, it was so freaky. If the, if that thing had collided with the church, the mayhem would have been unbelievable. Because there were a lot of people standing around watching and shit, you know, aside from all the extras. And that was terrifying. Fortunately, I was not in that scene. I think my character was already dead by that point. So I was there just to watch the helicopter. It was, uh, it was freaky. It was freaky. What was it like working with Rhea Perlman and Danny DeVito on the ratings game? That was a lot of fun, a lot of fun. It was Danny's first directorial job, I believe. You know, this is the point I always stick on. Had we met before, I can't remember. I can't remember. But that was, that show was a lot of fun. I got to uh, sort of invent my character by myself. And uh, Danny kept me on the rails. But I enjoyed myself a lot, and I, I should, I would be interested to see that again because I remember thinking, uh, I remember liking my own work, which is rare, you know. If you like your work too much, then you're dead in the water, you become stale, you know. You, you gotta keep, you gotta stay hungry. Uh, but I remember thinking, uh, that I was okay in that, and, uh, there's some definite funny, funny moments. It was a, a good idea, a good, funny idea. It was a, a satire of the Hollywood studio business or, or, the, or the business of show business, you know, the way decisions are made and, and, and uh, who gets to make a new TV show and who doesn't, and who you have to know and who you have to fuck and so on. It was funny. Rhea is a very sweet person. Rhea Pullman is a very sweet woman. And and Danny was, uh, well, he wasn't as loose as he might have been because he was directing the thing. But uh, he was fun. It was, just a, it was fun. It was one of those gigs that was actual, genuine fun to do. So what are you up to these days? Not much, brother. Not much. I've been sidelined by uh, 
uh, this uh, nerve condition that's kind of taken me out of the action. So, uh, I mean, if the right kind of, what kind of part came along, you know, the Perry Mason part back into sitting down, uh, I'd jump on it. But uh, at this point, I don't even have an agent. I really have to start again. Are you doing much of the convention work you were talking about? It seems to vary from year to year. The biggest year, I think I did four or five of them in one year. And uh, so far this year, none. But I've got one coming up uh, 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 at the end of summer. So. Well, I really can't thank you enough for taking the time to talk to me. I always have such a nice time just speaking with you. This is uh, It's always a pleasure. Well, thank you, man. Thank you. That's really nice. I, I just hope you got something you can use. We are back and we we're talking about Terror Vision. I should plug too uh, when we talked to John Grice about the uh, uh, the film Joysticks. I talked to him a little bit about Terror Vision, and yeah, he's got great memories of that. It seems like everybody had a really good time on set and still holds this movie in high regard. So I'm really glad because, like I said, the fun that they're having on screen definitely comes through and it, it doesn't feel like it's a, a weirdo in joke or something. It actually makes it more fun to watch the movie that way. But if you look at the movie as a satire of especially 80s sitcoms, it actually gives it some weight. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Whenever we talk about satires of 80s sitcoms, I my mind immediately goes to that uh, scene in Natural Born Killers with the, uh, the Rodney Dangerfield and uh, Julia uh, Juliet Lewis and the soundtrack, the laugh track going on over that horrible molestation scene. Oh, my God. Uh, <laughs> luckily, we're not as dark as that with this film. Chad Allen might disagree. He, he, he says, what other film do you have a 10-year-old running around with a machine gun, throwing grenades, and being perfectly willing to shoot people? He said, on a certain level, that's kind of dark. And then he laughs about it. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, the, the yeah, the movie's dark as, as hell. I mean, absolutely. But in a great way, in an absolutely great way. With that darkness, it's offset by the fact that it's clearly a comedy before it's a horror film, which Charles Band had a problem with. But also, right. visually, it's light. So the dark tones are saturated in a good way through the way the movie's shot and the way it's written – it really does come off like a comedy, but not like a mean-spirited comedy. Well, you know, to me, this movie feels a lot like like an opposite version of, like, Street Trash, you know, where, like, that's a movie that's super dark and super gross, you know, and, but there's some funny shit in it, that, whereas this one is also super dark and super gross, but is mostly funny shit. As I was watching this movie, I kept thinking of Mom and Dad Save the World. Do you guys remember that one? As far as films go that I watched as... A younger person, that one ranks up there. That movie's a lot of fun. I actually thought of a different film. I thought of Stay Tuned. I, I was thinking there's no way Stay Tuned from Peter Hyams was not influenced by this. Because think about it, not just with the satellite dish, although 
in Stay Tuned, they're from hell, not from outer space. But even the dynamic of the brother and sister, they have similar personalities. The mom and the dad have similar personalities, although not swingers. Even some of the things that happen within Stay Tuned mirror some of the things in Terror Vision to the point where – I think Peter Himes was absolutely influenced by this, and he worked with John Grice on Running Scared, so John might have influenced him to, hey, I just did this movie you might really, really like. Was that the one with uh, John Ritter? Yep. Oh. Yeah, the the, the oh, one yeah, with okay. John Ritter, and unfortunately, it's very, very difficult to uh, watch now because of the, the child molester. Jones. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> He's ruined well, yeah, a lot say, of it, movies for me. I think he was no, no. Jeffrey Jones is in uh, Mom and Dad Save the World. Yeah, he's well, he's in. He's definitely in Mom and Dad Save the World. I thought, I thought he was in Stay Tuned as well. I thought he was like the the Devil's Henchman or something. Jesus, is he in both of those movies? As I hear Mo frantically typing, or I'm, Josh frantically typing. typing. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm frantically typing. I'm frantically typing because I'm like, if I'm wrong, I'll admit I'm wrong. Yeah, he absolutely is. He totally is in Stay Tuned. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He he plays Spike. He was who I'm thinking of. So, yeah, Jeffrey Jones ruins that for me, too. Oh, my God. So he was in both of those films. Which, no wonder I get those films confused in my head. But, but if you look at, like, Stay Tuned, you go, that just wasn't a very good movie. It's kind of an inferior, huge-budget version remake of Terror Vision. And like I said, I'm not calling plagiarism on Peter Himes, okay? I'm just saying there's no way he was not influenced by Terror Vision. I am trying, and this is where I rely on you for a lot of things, Josh. I'm trying to remember a TV show, so you can start accessing your database, (laughs) a TV show where it's like – because this has happened so many times, right? You get beamed into a world that is basically a television show, kind of like Pleasantville, right? But there's one where it was like a lot lower budget and it was just crazy. And I want to say there was, and now this is not the movie remote control, but I want to say there was like a magical remote control, not to be confused with the Adam Sandler film, but this was like a guy beams himself in, or maybe it was a girl. And I remember at one point, like he hits the subtitle button or something and his family changes to Mexican? Does that oh, no, you're too? thinking of when we did our Creep Show 3 retrospective. You're thinking of Thank Creep you. Show 3. Thank you. All right. Wow. I knew it was something that maybe you and I had talked about before. Yeah, because okay. you, you were on our Creep Show retrospective, and I still say Creep Show 3 is one of the worst fucking horror films I've ever <gasps> seen, but then you ended up liking it, so there's no accounting for taste. Well, you know, it was no Creep Show 2. I mean, there was no, this hair is going to get me paid and laid, but at least I remember that bit, right? I don't remember it well, but I remember the bit. Yes, but it, that's from a movie, not from a TV show. Okay, thank you. So it was a movie about television. So have you guys seen the film uh, Remote Control? I think it was Jeff Lieberman. I love that movie. The, the only way you're going to appreciate that remote control is if you love over-the-top, stereotypical 50s sci-fi. And it's fun as hell. It Well, I guess it would fall into VHS culture, too, because the VHS tape plays a large role in the movie. It seems like that would be a really good double feature with TerraVision. Honestly, yeah. All right. That's how, it. Mic drop. How have I never seen this? This is getting added to my list like right now. You can buy the wow. DVD from Joe, Joe Lieberman himself. Joe Lieberman, the senator from Connecticut? Jeff Lieberman. <laughs> I would actually rather buy it from Joe Lieberman because he's a piece of crap and I like Jeff Lieberman. Jeff Lieberman will make you squirm. All right. Is there anything else we want to say about Terror Vision? 
It's an underrated film that I think more people should see. It it does have a Blu-ray release, although it's coupled with the video dead, which I guess thematically kind of go together because that's, you know, cursed television as well, but not in the same sort of vein. It, it is on Blu-ray, so you can get it, and I do recommend it, but I don't think a lot of people are going to. This thing does not get a lot of publicity when it came out. I, I remember this just flying under the radar. Yeah, this is the sort of movie that I'd only recommend to a certain group of people. And honestly, anybody who I would recommend has probably already seen it. So, Well, maybe there's a couple of people out there that haven't seen this one that should see it. Trust me, I'll keep pushing it out there to the people who I think might like it. But I generally get, oh, yeah, I remember that one. You know, when I try to say, yeah, we should watch this. If, if, if anybody wants to see Elvira as Medusa from Clash of the Titans with huge knockers, this is the movie for you. If that doesn't sell it, I don't know what does. <laughs> and she even has a thing about how she can turn men to stone and men get hard just by her looking at them. Subtle, subtle. That actually reminds me of uh, of a horror convention I went to. I guess it would have been like twenty years ago at this point, where I'm uh, I was doing some VHS hunting, and on the table there was a box, and on the box there was this very scantily clad woman, and their tagline for the film was "See this girl nude." <laughs> <laughs> Subtlety is for fruits. I think it was on on the Phase Four episode. Remember the original Ants cover? Oh, yeah. We all rented it because of that cover, so we shouldn't be talking all high and mighty here. The box art for this movie, the poster art, was fantastic. That sold me. That was what got my attention the first time I ever saw this, was that big eyeball in the center of the satellite dish. I would say about 75 to 80 percent of my VHS collection, which is substantial, is based solely on what the box art looks like. I do want to mention one other thing about uh, this movie and its place. It doesn't feel like an Empire film. And that's one of the things Charles Band had a problem with. Because most Empire films, if they're a horror film, they're relatively serious and somewhat mean. Ted Nicolau said he had a hard time selling this to Band because Band had already sold the movie. Remember, the poster was made before they even had a script. And he, Band, wanted a horror film. What Nicolau delivered to him was not a horror film. And Charles Band said at the time he hated the movie. But then looking back at it, he's warmed up to it. I, I think it's kind of cool, no matter what we think of him as a shameless salesman, that, that he let Nicolau go ahead anyway, even though it was against what Band wanted. Yeah, sometimes great art comes out of uh, a desperate desire for commerce, I suppose. Or maybe even despite a desperate desire for commerce. (laughs) (laughs) All right, we're going to take a break and play a preview for next week's show. She's dead. Wrapped in plastic. I've got idea, man. You take me for a walk under the sycamore tree. The dark trees that blow, baby, in the dark trees that blow. And I 
That's right. Next week will be a little different as we revisit our Firewalk With Me discussion as well as discuss Twin Peaks The Return. Now, we don't talk a lot about TV around here as opposed to Josh Hadley, who does quite a bit of that on the Lost in the Static podcast. As well as Radiodrome and What the Fuck. And hell, I'm writing a book about TV that nobody's ever seen before. So TV, obscure TV is kind of my thing. I, I seem to remember once, Mike, you were looking for like a TV pilot or something and you said – you came to me and you said, Josh, you know, every TV show that's never existed. And then you gave me a description and I think I pointed you in the right direction. Other than that elusive HBO show, The Edge, which we can only find like what, one or two episodes? Two episodes. Of, I, think- I, I had one. You had one. So together we have two and we still cannot find the third one. I, I still don't get that, how an HBO show like that can just disappear off the face of the earth. I actually talked to HBO about that. They don't have any remembrance. There's literally no one working at HBO right now that was there when that show existed. So nobody even knew what I was talking about when I was talking to the head of archives at HBO. He should have just given you a job right then and there. (laughs) If only. So tell me more about the book. When is that coming out? I'm not sure when it's coming out. I have to deliver my, my final draft on December 1st, so I'm assuming probably early 2018 because, you know, editorial and finding the photos and everything is probably going to take a while. But it's called Getting Lost in the Static, and it's about unaired TV pilots. So it's about the stuff you haven't seen. And where can folks keep up with you? 1201beyond.com, and I can be contacted at 1201beyond at gmail.com. Emma, what is new in your world these days? Uh, well, let's see. The uh, No Budget Nightmares, the show I've been co-hosting with uh, the illustrious Doug Tilly, is about to hit oh, it. Oh, wait, you know that guy? <laughs> yeah, unfortunately. Okay, interview <laughs> over. Yeah, <it's, laughs> click. Um, yeah, I get that a lot, actually. Yeah, that's uh, we're about to hit our 100th episode. Uh, we like, you know, now most people would look at that and say, wow, you managed to, you, you managed to do something that everybody else could do in four years. And it took you six, but we like to say we work so much harder at giving you the best possible content that it took us that much longer to get it out to you. Uh, the truth is we're just lazy and we take breaks a lot. Uh, but yeah, we're, we're pushing the, the hundredth episode, which should actually be out real soon. Uh, like next week at the, like, I think like October 9th or 10th, but don't quote me on that. And, uh, that's, that's done we we need to uh put it all together and get it out there we it's it's full of all sorts of amazing fun things we've got interviews with uh four people who i'm actually not allowed to to mention um because if i do doug will hunt me down and murder me i think i actually got that in writing But uh, and we're going to uh, revisit a film from our past in the episode, which I think I may have just said some more than I was allowed to say as well. But that's OK. Keep that part in. I'll deal with the uh, with the you know provocations of Mr. Tilly. But I'm super excited about it. It's, uh, it's like it's going to be a ridiculously long episode, but it's going to be totally worth it. And anybody who wants to listen to that, uh, you can find us on iTunes. Uh, um 
or on dorkshelf.com, which is where all our new shows are posted. And then eventually uh, it'll be over on nobudgetpodcast.com, which is where we keep our archive. Well, you know, I do like a long episode now and again. Well, I, yeah, this one's going to be I, I, I get the joke. I get the joke. But <laughs> this one is going to be close to four hours. Probably it's going to be. Nice. I was actually on that Conan one. So I know. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you guys for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. Please head on over to the website projection dash booth.com where you can find out more about today's episode. You also find links over to iTunes where you can rate and review the show and to Patreon where you can make a donation to the show. Donors get early access to every episode as long as I'm not running late. Every donation and every rating we get helps the projection booth and the hungry beast monster take over the world.
If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media, let's make some noise.